Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey. I'm your host for the evening. Uh, yeah, let me get this out of the way first. I say that. That's not really how I, I want to address this at the top of the show, not get it out of the way like, okay, let's move on. Um, about an, If I'm a little out of sorts tonight, uh, about an hour ago, news broke that... Bobby Heenan has passed away. Oh, excuse me. Whoa. Jeez, I don't think I've said that out loud yet. <laughs> um, yeah, the, okay. Grief. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Man. Uh, that just really sucks. You know, Bobby was maybe the best ever in that, uh, in that field, so... Whew. Again, if I'm out of sorts, I apologize. It's mostly that. Um, tonight we will be reviewing last night's UFC Fight Night 116 card. Not a bad night of fights, actually. A lot of finishes, some really, some good stuff, some interesting fights along the way. A really, you know, solid card up all around. So. We'll be talking about that. We will also be previewing next week, Fight Night 117, which lost half of its main event uh, last night, actually. Uh, it, was an, it was reported on Twitter, and then the UFC confirmed it on the broadcast that uh, Shogun tore, uh, injured his knee again and was out of the main event. He was going to have a rematch with Ovin St. Preux. Uh, now, replacing Shogun on a week's notice will be former UFC middleweight title contender Yushin Okami. Uh, we'll run down that whole card. There's a few interesting fights on that card. Um, again, you have uh, Gokan Saki making his UFC debut, which is interesting. Uh, there's a relevant strawweight fight, so we're going to just kind of go through that card as per usual and you know talk about... All the major news items, John Jones' B sample coming back positive for the same issue that his A sample had. Uh, the UFC making Daniel Cormier the light heavyweight champion again. I have a bone to pick with that series of events, but uh, we can save that for later. And because the scoring of Triple G Canelo was so bad, I want to give Pat a few minutes at the end of the show to talk about that. And But for those of you who would like, oh, God, why do they talk boxing on an MMA podcast? I will be at the end. 
we'll put it off for you, I promise. So, uh, all right, that's kind of what's on the agenda for this evening. If you would like to call in, feel free to do so at 323-657-0901. If you would like to submit questions or comments via some other format, feel free to tweet me at WinFreeMMA. Feel free to leave comments on the Rattlets and Broadcasting Network Facebook page. There is a post with the player embedded. Uh, feel free to leave those there as well, and I will do my darndest to get to them if that's how you choose to interact with the show. All right. On that note, let's go ahead and introduce the panel for this evening. First up, 411 Mania's uh, Wildcat. He's in every single zone pretty much, guys. Uh, one of the hardest working people on the site. Uh, Jeff Harris is with us again. How you doing, Jeff? Hey, Jeff, you there? Is Jeff here? He's here. He might still be. I have him unmuted on mine. It might be on his end. Okay. Well, Pat, go ahead. And we'll give him. Uh, we'll let that kind of sort itself out. See if he just was muted on his end as well. Um, Pat, how you doing this evening? Since I know you're um, since you're here as well. Yeah, not not the best night. Um, I'm a little bit numb based on the news you just kind of went through. Um, just real quick, Bobby Heenan's the greatest performer in the history of the wrestling business. He is not only the greatest manager, he could go in there as a wrestler and sell out the major arenas and replace somebody on the card without losing a beat and perform just as well. He was the second best color commentator that there's ever been. Um, he's the greatest entertainer in arguably any field there's ever been. And he's irreplaceable and he's the reason I love professional wrestling and he's gone. All right, let me – did that not work? Son of a – hang on. I think I know what happened to Jeff. Yeah, let's try this. Okay, Jeff, can you – I think I can hear you now. Can, I can you hear, hear me? you guys. What about, okay. what about you? Uh, blog Talk decided not to recognize me unmuting you but still show you as unmuted. So, right. yay interface. Sorry about you, that, Jeff. Uh, How are you doing this evening? Well, well uh, it's – it's a pretty solemn evening. Uh, we've lost. Uh, he's not. It's not even a maybe that Bobby was the greatest of all time. He was the greatest of all time. To me, it's not even an argument. Um, but we will remember him for all the great things he did. For you know the careers he made and the classic, uh, the classic moments and the classic entertainment he brought all of us. And. Um, yeah, I it, it it's tough to put into words, uh, but uh, many um, what many would call the greatest shows of all time. It was Keenan's presence and his work on the shows that I think made them uh, the greatest. And uh, so yeah, as for the whole, uh, just my two cents on the whole Canelo Golovkin thing. There's only two words of uh, there's. There's there's not really any big analysis or reasoning why. It's just two words uh, of why it was scored the way it was. Her name's Adelaide Bird. So yeah. There um, you go. Oh, that's a short, true. That's she a has. Short, um, oh, it's Adelaide Bird. That's all. That's I, all I need to say about that. Yeah, she's she's been, she's, 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 been a, she's been a blight not just on the boxing community but the MMA community for years. Um, and uh, she, she's a, she's a federal criminal as far as I'm concerned. Uh, she doesn't 
belong in any type of government regulatory position. Uh, no, she's there to fill a quota, and it's unfortunate that she's so incompetent. She's a federal. She's a federal criminal. Lock her up. Yeah. Um, oh, loosely related. Uh, sorry, I I hate. This sounds kind of ghoulish, so I apologize if this comes off that way. Uh, if you want more detailed thoughts on Bobby Heenan, Pat and I did a. I think we did an Everyone Loves a Bad Guy dedicated just to Bobby Heenan. Yes, we did. Uh, it's in the archives of the Radlich and Broadcasting Network. So if you want our thoughts, this was a couple of years ago, on him and his career, feel free to look that up. Uh, all right. Last night, UFC Fight Night 116. Again, not a bad card. In the main event, um, Luke Rockhold defeated David Branch via submission due to strikes in the second round. This was... It, there. This went about as it went about as Branch actually came out very aggressively, which is not his normal style. Um, he saw something in the footage on Rockhold, I guess. He pushed forward a lot in the first round. Landed some pretty decent punches. Rockhold still has some pretty glaring weaknesses. Uh, if he's pressured, he's not very good fighting going backwards. And uh, the fight with Chris Weidman. Whoever was winning that fight was whoever was going forward, and it was pretty clear uh, that's what it ha- That's where that fight was going. He's still lazy he with his lead hand. He was sloppy. Uh, Kenny Sporian said it last night. I said it. He was sloppy. Yeah, and he's fortunate that once they got into the second round, David Branch was content to grapple as much as he was. David Branch is a good, is a very good grappler in his own right, but. Luke Rockhold might be the best grappler in that division. And his top game, especially his mount, is basically death. He has devoted a significant amount of time and energy into perfecting his mount game. For the last, like, three to five years in the MMA world, mount hasn't been what it used to be. A lot of guys learned how to both defend it in terms of keeping you from getting there and learned how to shrimp and hip escape and regard, even if they were mounted. There's only a few guys in the world right now who have a mount to the point where if they get you there, you are not escaping. You are just screwed. And you better pray there's not a lot of time left on the clock. Luke Rockhold is one of those guys. He was able to secure the takedown in the second round, passed immediately uh, from side, from not side control, from half guard into full mount. He had a really nice pass. I might be confusing him with someone else. No, no, I'm thinking of Gillespie's pass, excuse me. Um, anyway, he did get to full mount after securing a nice trip takedown and just rode and pounded David Branch until David Branch tapped out. Uh, he, again, he looked rusty. His striking was nowhere near what it... Even what it used to be, he's never been the best puncher, but his kicking game didn't look as effective. He was letting himself get pressured into the fence. He looked rusty. Uh, he was able to you know, kind of shake that off and still get the win, but uh, there's still some elements of his game that need sharpening. Um, he proceeded to say he's more than happy to step in on very short notice to fight Michael Bisbing should GSP fall out of that upcoming title fight. I would be okay with that were that circumstance to occur. 
Um, just, you know, not, again, not Rockhold's best performance, but he got a win. He got a win he really needed. And much as David Branch is generally a boring fighter, he's a very credentialed and very successful boring fighter. And Rockhold was able to get him out of there inside of three rounds. That's all much to his credit. I want to briefly give credit to David Branch for both taking the first round, especially with a style that he doesn't normally use, and for showing the experience and acumen in the second round to realize that he was screwed. He was done. The only question at hand, he could not escape that position. He was either going to give up back mount or full mount. He was not going to get Luke Rockhold off of him. And he made the intelligent decision to just know that he was done and avoid excessive abuse from by being in that position for longer than necessary. And much as we laud toughness, I think it's uh, we do need to laud some of the intelli- the intelligence of fighters who know when they're done in a fight, and who ma- and who avoid again taking unnecessary damage. Um, Luke Sanders did the same thing when he fought. Uh, he was because he was beating Yuri Alcantara, gave up a brief sweep into a knee bar, and rather than try to fight through it and let his knee get destroyed. As soon as he knew there was no getting out of that position, he just tapped and saved his and saved the joint. Again, toughness is extremely important, and we laud it for a reason. I do think we also need to laud fighters who just know, uh, okay, I'm going to take the loss, and I'm going to make sure I still have a long career ahead of me. So I do want to give David Branch a little bit of credit for, again, overperforming relative to my expectations, certainly. And for you know, continuing to be an intelligent fighter as far as, all right, I'm done. Let's save some head trauma here and move on to the next one. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you for this fight. Uh, what did you think about it? What did you think of you know, Branch's performance and you know, Rockhold finally you know, breaking the year plus off and getting back on the winning side of things? I think Luke Rockhold, I think partly taking that one year and a half layoff, uh, making it so self-imposed. I think that was a mistake on his part. And I think I, I kind of get, you know, if he was upset that, uh, you know, Bisping's behavior, Bisping uh, campaigning for that fight with George St. Pierre and what have you. But, I mean, he still lost the title legitimately. And I think he just should have been more eager to fight again and, and, you know, because the last time he had a tough loss like that, he went on one of the best runs of his career and captured uh, the UFC title. Um, I think Branch uh, did a good job of making it competitive in uh, the first round and taking advantage of uh, Luke Rockhold's um, weak uh, striking defense. And uh, I don't I don't know if uh, Rockhold was, was tired. He looked a little looked a little tired uh, in the first round. I don't know if he had, if uh, his stamina and cardio was even ready to go five rounds. But um, he managed to get the fight to the ground uh, in round two. Uh, His grappling game, if you don't consider Luke Rockhold elite, his grappling game definitely is. Because look at this. I mean, he went on a run where he submitted, okay, Timbo, he's not a real class fighter, but, you know, he's been consistently ranked in the top 15 of the middleweight division for several years. Then he submitted Michael Bisping, the current UFC champion, and, he, and then he submitted Leo Demichita. 
another former UFC champion. So, I mean, the, the guy's ability to get the fight to the mat and, uh, and just impose his will and then either beat his opponent into submission or submit them himself, it's pretty impressive. Uh, I mean, he beat, he beat Chris Wyman on the ground, too, even though it was TKO. So he definitely displayed that here. I was happy to see him come back and get the win uh, and look strong, even though he had some adversity in the first time. And uh, I hope he's I hope he's back and he's and he's back in there competing with the top middleweights because I think middleweight is a very I think it's a very interesting scene right now. I think it's one of the UFC's more competitive, better divisions, and I want to see <clears throat> I want to see Luke Rockhold in the in the event. I just I'm just a little disappointed he was out so long. I know he, he was scheduled to fight Jacare and had an injury, but I think some of this was just him being upset at the UFC brass. Yeah, there was uh, there was some of that. Uh, again, he did have that injury, but a lot of this was, well, like you said, self-imposed. Uh, Pat, I have a, in addition to your thoughts on the fight itself, I have a technical question. Because there was a lot of this last night from where I sat. There was a lot of really lazy work by fighters with their lead hand, both offensively and especially defensively, and it got some people seriously knocked out. How is it that Luke Rockhold, who lost the title specifically because he was very lazy with his lead hand, has not improved that aspect of his game? I mean, if there's one thing he should be able he should have fixed, it's the glaring weakness that got him knocked out by Michael Bisbeck. Uh, yeah. I I know one one the obvious reason. Uh, well, go, reason go ahead with the obvious reason, he Jeff. Left, he left uh, American Kickboxing Academy and went to Henry Hook. That's fair. <laughs> he, did, he did switch camps I mean, before this fight. That's true. Yeah, there, there's the camp switch is a big one, but at the same time, this was still a tendency he had when still training, you know, with AKA. And it's it's something now where Rockhold is one of those guys where when a camp really wants a what's perceived to be a big money fighter within their ranks, they often tend to coddle them more than correctly instruct them. And that's a problem for the fighter because ultimately he's not going to get what he needs to deliver the results. And it's a problem for the camp when all of a sudden this guy's not winning the fights he should be winning because of these technical flaws that you haven't harped on them to improve because you're afraid to say boo to them and have them take the money they draw to another camp. And then all of a sudden they're not worth anything to you. And you've killed yourself twice by doing that. Any fighter who's a serious fighter and wants to be a champion is going to listen when their trainers get down on them and say, listen, you're doing this and you need to stop it because it's going to get you knocked out or put into a potentially bad position. And that's one of the things that they have to address because, again, Rockhold's left hand was constantly way lower than it should have been. When he used it, which was sparingly in, in what he should have done, it came back very low. And Luke Rockhold doesn't fight in a position where that low lead hand is not a liability. Robert Whitaker is a guy who fights with his lead hand very low, but he does it intentionally to draw you into traps with either a right hand behind it or a leg kick or a left hook baiting you in. And he, he's good at setting the trap with that. Luke Rockhold is not, and he doesn't have the defensive responsibility to be wary of it. David Branch is not a threat with his hands. 
That's just how it is. And had he fought somebody who was a little bit more in that regard, dangerous, he could have very easily lost his fight last night, especially with how he performed in the first round. Now, give Branch credit for fighting that way effectively in the first round. But at the same time, that was a bad performance by Luke Rockhold. And we're going to see things like that happen. And you pointed out, there was a ton of this during the whole card. And it's just guys falling in love with things they do in camp, not having proper training or trainers behind them. And it's going to lead to these neophyte mistakes that we see all the time. You know, I know I'm hard on people when I criticize their striking ability, particularly on the defensive end, but this is validating everything I say. Rockhold is a top-level middleweight. He was just the champion, and he's doing novice day one stuff in the gym that you have to have corrected still. Yeah, again, there a lot of that was on the – mostly the prelims. A little bit the Smith and Lombard finish, which we'll get to in a second, just – guys with their lead hand not bringing it back into proper position. And, again, there's at least two that helped who it got them knocked out. Uh, all right, your co-main event. This was supposed to be Mike Perry versus Tiago Alves. Tiago Alves fell out due to what injury? Did they confirm that? Due to Alves. No, it was uh, Hurricane Irma. It was an injury. Okay. He just couldn't yeah, – okay, he didn't get out in time. Logistical complications. Okay, fair enough. But I, I'm hearing on the grapevine that it was – didn't want to lose itis. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. And, yeah, I, I, that's what I think the realistic issue is there. I mean, listen, there are a lot of people who knew about that well ahead of time and a lot of fighters who leave their home base camp to go train in the place they're fighting weeks ahead of schedule – like, come on with the armor, really? There's a specific example from this same card, actually, in the first fight of the night. Gilbert Burns also trains out of South Florida. He left like two weeks ago with his family to live in Pittsburgh up until this event to avoid the hurricane and be there and be ready and willing and able to fight, you know, barring other unforeseen complications. A lot of people, a lot of people were dealing with this. Um, a lot of American top team people were dealing with this who are not Tiago Alves and weren't even fighters. Um, they were, yeah, I mean, Amanda Nunes just fought a week ago. Yeah, and they were able to deal with it. Like, I get it's not, it's not ideal. And, and look, my parents live in Houston, okay? So I, I had to go through all of this with Hurricane Harvey. Um, I, just find it, I just find it hard to believe. To me, to me, it just sounds like he didn't want to fight Mike Perry. That's the way it sounded to me. And I saw his Instagram post. It, I saw a statement. He, I, he didn't want to fight him. That's it. I agree. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I can't disagree with that. Um, anyway, stepping in on short notice was Alex Reyes. Um, Alex Reyes is normally a lightweight, which you could see in his frame. Despite being slightly taller than Mike Perry, there was a significant depth and give that guy at least four fights i mean give that guy give that guy 10 fights in the ufc for going in there for having the balls to go in there and get and get his ass beat by my and and he didn't and he didn't have to cut a pound he actually came in at 167 and a half that and that's his walking around weight so he's not a big lightweight to begin with and he came in without having to cut any weight and was still significantly under the weight limit yeah the um yeah, and, uh, you know, again, I want to give Reyes some credit because 
there are things that he was doing for his, I mean, this fight ended a minute and 19 seconds into the first round. There are still things he was doing that were the correct thing to do. He, he caught just, Perry with a couple solid shots. Yeah, he was able to find openings in Perry's defense, which, I mean, Perry's defense is basically his chin. Yeah. He was able to utilize his kicking game against kind of for as long as it lasted. The biggest problem Reyes ran into in this fight was he was just outmatched physically. I'm not saying that even if there wasn't a massive physical discrepancy that you know Mike Perry wouldn't have beaten him anyway. Mike Perry has beaten some good welterweights. But Reyes really didn't have much of a chance because even the things he was doing right had very little actual effect on what happened. Uh, again, they they struck a lot. Mike Perry bowled into the clinch. Um, Mike Perry has a sneakily good clinch game. He he was able to land elbows and knees and finally just broke Reyes' posture with a tie clinch and then kneed him in the face, and that was it. Uh, again, that was basically what was expected of this fight once you have a natural lightweight, if not a, you know, a, a hard-cutting featherweight, stepping in there on a, you know, less than a week's notice. Uh, Mike Perry called out Robbie Lawler after this fight. That fight never occurred to me because I think of Robbie Lawler as one of the five best welterweights in the world. And if his career trage- if he wants to fight for the belt again, he needs to be fighting another relevant contender. Uh, the winner of Stephen Thompson, Jorge Masvidal, for example, because that fight's coming up uh, not too far out. I think it's at UFC 216. Excuse me, 217. As far as I can tell, Perry's not even ranked right now. He was not no, he before wasn't. this. And to my way of He'll thinking, he should not down. be. He should not be after this even. I don't think he's one of the 15 best welterweights in the UFC. That being said, now that the thought of those two and the ensuing violence is in my head, I can dig it. I mean, if Robbie Lawler at this point in his career is not going to want to contend for the belt again, if he wants to put on memorable fights and get paid to do so against whoever happens to be the best stylistic matchup, then yeah, throw him and Mike Perry in there and let's let's watch those two tear each other to pieces. If you want to test a guy like Mike Perry, you give him, like, maybe Colby Covington. Yeah, there's – you've got Covington. You, I mean, Usman is now too far ahead after his performance from the same card. I mean, if you do want to test him against that, then, yeah, there's a, there's a class of fighter that he should be fighting next. But he made an intelligent call-out in the sense that, again, he and Robbie Lawler, I mean, it's nothing but violent fireworks, and uh, I am a fan of those. So, I mean, realistically, with that kind of call out, he's got nothing to lose and everything to gain. So why not take a shot when you do that? Uh, and I mean, even even then, the thought could cross the mind of Lawler. Where, firstly, I don't think anyone at the moment would object to Robbie Lawler making an appearance in a title fight after coming off of the win over Cowboy because he's still shortly removed from the championship. He beat a lot of top welterweights. Why would anybody object to him in a title fight? Realistically, unless there was someone absolutely deserving waiting in the wings. So why not, if he's going to do something, take a fight with Mike Perry, just if he can't get that title fight, he might view it as, you know, a safer fight than average because there's things Perry does that he could take advantage of. But it's a fan-friendly fight. It's a good opportunity. It's a keep-busy fight with a a minimal risk. 
and for Perry, Perry can go in there and try to prove what he's worth. And if he, if he even gives a good performance in a loss, his stock raises, you know, a hundred times from where it's at right now. Yeah. So again, if they go with that route, I will just shut up and enjoy the violence. But I'll say uh, this about Mike Perry. The establishment I happened to be at where I was watching this fight and the, the boxing pay-per-view, the, you know, they had several screens with both on, which was really nice. Uh, the reaction immediately of friends of mine to Mike Perry and his girlfriend after the fight was, wow, they based Khaleesi and Carl Drago on real people. <laughs> Mike Perry's mohawk was something uh, to behold. That, that's, that's a fair observation. Uh, Jeff, anything else you want to say about this fight? Uh, Mike Perry, he's a he's a violent, uh, entertaining fighter, but uh, as you said, he does kind of like to just uh, block punches with his chin, and uh, that's going to catch up to him sooner or later. Um, I don't know if you pose to the fight with Lawler. Uh, again, I I like the idea of. Matching someone, someone, him up with someone to test him to see how good he can really be, like a, like a Colby Covington. Um, for Covington, it would be a lower ranked fighter, but I mean, it would be for Covington, it would be someone who's very popular and is getting a lot of buzz right now, and it could be a showcase for him to get a good win uh, and build up his resume. But. Um, you could go so many different ways with Mike Perry right now. You could even try and rebook the fight with uh, Tiago Alves if you want, but um, I think Alves would probably just find another way out of it. That's that's fair. All right. At middleweight, Anthony Smith defeated Hector Lombard via TKO in the third round. Um, this was another instance of some kind of sloppy handwork by Lombard that led to him getting finished, as well as Anthony Smith remembering that, hey, I can throw more than one punch at a time. Um, Lombard had a decent enough game plan early. He still needs to work on his infighting because, yeesh. But he tried a more reserved pace. He had some really solid leg kicks, actually, which are not an aspect of his game that he's shown off a whole lot. But he couldn't put Anthony Smith away. He started tiring. Smith didn't get really tired and finally got going in the third round. And a really solid combination. I can't remember what it was specifically. I want to say it was like a... It might have been Southpaw at the time. I, for, I forget, so my apologies. But it was an instance of he kind of landed a single shot. And then when he saw that he could land the one, he... Finally, again, kind of remembered that, hey, I can throw a combination. Landed a two-punch combination to follow that up. I believe a left hook into a right cross. That just put Lombard down, and that was all she wrote. Um, Anthony Smith really has to work on his starts. I mean, we call Donald Cerrone a slow starter here from time to time. I mean, this was this was worse than that. Um I think Brian Stan on Twitter put out the phrase, and this was, this was in regards to a different fight than this one, but I think it applies here. One of his early uh, coaches or trainers told him that he had a tendency to fight with his mental emergency break on. And I think Anthony Smith has a bit of that through the first seven to eight minutes of a fight. And you know, you're never going to turn into a bat out of hell, but you've got to be able to get going within those first three minutes or so. Um, otherwise, you're at a severe disadvantage. 
But, you know, I can't imagine people actually picking Hector Lombard at this stage of his career. I mean, Lombard had a really good run, but at this point in time, eh, just, just, eh. I don't the think most there's a high prospect in UFC MMA history. Yeah, at the moment, I'm not sure there's another middleweight I would pick him to beat. I'd really have to go through their roster with some, with like a fine tooth comb. Uh, Pat, I'll start with you. Um, Anthony Smith. I mean, this is—he's just one of those, you know, tough guys who has a modicum of fighting ability. What do you think about again his performance relative to Lombard? His slow start. Uh, just your thoughts on the fight. You know, Lombard is at a point in his career where he should have more than enough tools at his disposal to be able to deal with an Anthony Smith, and the fact that he doesn't just shows you that he's never been all that good. He was overhyped, and it's not even so much as just not living up to hype. He never developed anything to to just lift himself up from the disappointment he became. He literally only started using effective leg kicking in the fight last night, and he's been in mixed martial arts for over a decade. Leg kicks are almost uh, as fundamental as basically jabbing. They're a necessary tool to a certain point, and are so useful, especially to someone who is supposedly and purportedly a striker. And yet last night was the first time we saw him utilize them effectively in any way, which is ridiculous. Anthony Smith basically let him do what he was going to do in the first round, tried to feel him out in the second, and I think it was pretty visible that Lombard towards the end of the second round was not really – he was outlanding him, but not landing anything with snap or conviction on it that was going to trouble him. And when a fighter starts feeling that from somebody, then they know there's a pretty good chance they can close in, and as soon as they see an opening, they're going to take it. And what we had in the third round was a situation where Lombard, who at one point in time they were calling him Little Overeem because he had a tendency to throw one strike, throw nothing back, and just try to get out of harm's way because he was so afraid of taking a strike in return here he threw got countered with one but anthony smith followed up with another and one of the fundamental things you talked about was how you see a definite a definitive lack of combination striking from guys because they just don't know how to do it fluidly and you saw how well it can work when it's used right and that's how anthony smith won this All right, Jeff, uh, again, you and I mentioned it last week in our preview. We just have like this – you're the one who came up with this policy years ago of just I – will, I will, you said I will never pick Hector Lombard again to win a fight. Uh, it seems to be working out. I mean, the man's on like a four-fight losing streak now. And, I mean, I don't want to diss Anthony Smith like this, but if you're losing to fighters of that caliber – especially when you have the history that Lombard does in, in terms of just how many years he's been in the sport. He might, he might, yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine the UFC keeping him around after this. Um, they shouldn't look Hector Lombard. He came in, they gave him his opportunity to become something big. Uh, he couldn't, he was, look, he was never that good. The guys he was beating, I'm not saying they they were terrible fighters, but like they weren't the elite fighters um, 
of his weight class of of MMA. The guy, look, he was beating. Here's who he was beating in Bellator: Jay Silva, Herbert Goodman, in a juiced up, geared up uh, Alexander Slamenko. We're not exactly talking about, um, you know, some of the some of the best fighters in history. Um, but look, they came in, they gave him an opportunity, um, and he couldn't even get past Tim Boat. So I mean, I mean, what does that tell you uh, about the guy as an elite level performer? Um, not to mention his own experience with uh, performance enhancing drugs, which I don't think. Well, let's, let's, yeah, and yeah. let's let's be fair to Tim Bosch. Like you know, he's it's not. We're not saying Tim Bosch is a bad fighter by any means, but when you're in there and you're supposed to be the next big thing in this weight class and you can't get past a guy who's not elite, he's a tough guy and he's not a night off, but you get summarily beaten by him, and then you do nothing of note after that. It's, you know, where did all this come from? Because you were the champion of a C league with guys who weren't really that good to begin with and people bought into you? And, and he never, ever did anything to get better. Yeah, his lack of progression is somewhat shocking. I mean, much as all that was, you know, apparent, for me, I think the point when I just, and this, I may have been late to this particular party, when he didn't finish Dan Henderson in the first round of their fight. Not because, like, how dare you not finish Dan Henderson. That's not what I mean. Rewatch the first round of that fight, guys. Anyone out there who thinks I'm just blowing smoke. He should have ended that fight. Yep, and the fact that he was unable to, and bear in mind that the referee, there were times he could have stopped it, but not stopping it wasn't, you know, there's a reason nobody yelled what, at him the same Hector way. What Hector had going for him was that he had a bit of, you know, notoriety because he, you know, he fought some tough guys in Pride uh, earlier in his career. He fought guys like Gono and Misasi. He lost those fights, but he didn't get finished, and then you know, his Olympic background and he went on, he had a pretty, he had a, he had a long winning streak where he won like, I don't know, close to like 20 fights in a row without losing. Um, and yeah, he was a middleweight champion of Bellator. He had a, you know, and he was crushing, he was, cr- look, he was crushing tomato cans in Bellator and that was getting a lot of attention. And then, and then you have Bjorn Rebney saying, you know, I think he's the only guy who could beat Anderson Silva and that made some good clickbait headlines, and people people bought in. As Pat says, people bought into that. But um, Tim Bosch is never going to be like that elite top five guy, but he's been a pretty solid performer for the UFC for the better part of a decade. And the point is you need to be able to – if you want to be someone in the UFC, you have to be able to beat guys like Tim Bosch. And he couldn't even do that and look impressive against a guy like Tim Bosch, who's a guy who's tough but also beatable. So, we, would yeah. have, we would have even taken him being able to beat him. He didn't even necessarily have to be impressive, but he couldn't yes. even beat him. No. Couldn't be competitive no. with him. Yeah, that was... Uh, uh, let, yeah. Him, let, him go back, let him go back to Bellator. He can fight... Um, you can fight Roy Nelson in a super fight or something. Uh, why would you put that out there? Now it might happen. I might. Uh, all right. You it, know what? That could be a big fight for Bellator. Don't knock it. That's why it could happen. 
Uh, all right. In your scheduled bit of insanity for the evening, Gregor Gillespie defeated Jason Gonzalez via arm triangle in the second round. Uh, this fight was nuts. These two came out and just started throwing at each other. Uh, they both landed. They both landed solid punches. Um, this was nearly a 10-8 round for Gillespie. I I feel he got taken down repeatedly, put in, not just taken down, but like Gillespie would be in full side control. He might even add mount briefly. Uh, he got dropped badly up along the fence. What saved him from the 10-8, in my estimation, was not only the beginning of the round when he landed a series of really good head kicks. Towards the end of the round, he landed a really nice uppercut as Gillespie was uh, ducking over to kind of shoot that uh, that wobbled Gillespie a little bit. It was again, this was your this was your five minutes of insanity. Um, and then in the second round, Gillespie, who at this point had further confirmed that he was the superior wrestler. I mean, his those of you who don't know, Gregor Gillespie was the Division One national champion. Uh, I forget how many years ago. Not too many, but you know, obviously not like last year. Uh, this guy can wrestle. That, that's, an, that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, he was able to get a takedown into half guard, had a really nice pass into full mount. And the way he finished that arm, tri- he was fighting to get that thing locked in for a while. He kept trying to set it up, and then whenever Gonzalez would defend, he would go to something else and then go back to it. It was a really nice display of knowing kind of where you want to go in a fight, but having enough wherewithal to, to give your opponent other things to think about and worry about so that you can actually get to your destination. He had a really nice job. Um, Again, he maintained the mount through the choke. He really got his hips leveraged into this. Uh, Gonzalez tried everything under the sun to defend for as long as he possibly could, but Gillespie's squeezing again, some of the technical things he did with his arms and with his lower body to lock that thing up while maintaining mount were really nice. And again, Gonzalez tried everything, every defensive technique possible, but he couldn't get out of the choke and had to tap. Um, Again, this was, this was really fun. Gillespie really needs to learn how to move his head, especially when throwing, leaving his head on the center line is a real problem that his coaches need to look at this. This was a win. This was a uh, a fun fight. But that's a problem that he's going to run into going forward if he doesn't start addressing it now because his chin and his head was right there to be hit repeatedly. And someone with more power and, you know, maybe a little more technical finesse than Gonzalez is going to be able to just make him pay for that, again, repeatedly. So just something that if – I had one takeaway from him that he has to work on. Move your head, buddy. Uh, everything else was pretty solid. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you here. Uh, I think this was your fight of the night. Yes, it was. Uh, what did you think about it? Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, Gillespie was great. Um, he, he's definitely a prospect to watch, but it is lightweight, and it is a shark tank, and you know those errors could uh, come back to bite him eventually, but I really enjoyed this fight, and... Uh, Gillespie is just entertaining to watch. A lot of guys uh, really came uh, to fight last night, and that's what kind of made it a better-than-average uh, card. 
Yeah, all right. Pat, any thoughts on Gregor Gillespie apart from, you know, wishing him luck as he's uh, apparently fishing for muskie up, up in uh, Pennsylvania at the moment? Uh, I really, uh, as you pointed out, I really enjoyed his persistence in his pursuit of the choke without overcommitting to anything and making a really bad error. He instead would look for the opportunity to apply it when it wasn't there, switch to something to preoccupy Jason Gonzalez, try it again, look for a different opening this time. And he, when he finally got it, he applied it and he applied it flawlessly and got the tap. And I, I, I'm, first of all, the head and arm triangle, for those who don't know, is my favorite submission. I, I just have a real love for that hold. But to see it applied after the effort he put in is really satisfying. It's basically the jujitsu equivalent, to put in terms if you're not really familiar with grappling, it's a jujitsu equivalent of preoccupying somebody with jabs and punches to the arms to get them to move into a certain way to set up your knockout shot. That's this what this is in a grappling equivalent, and it's really beautiful to watch unfold. Uh, yeah, the the start of that fight kind of coincided with the start of uh, Triple G versus Canelo, so I I imagine that might have uh, helped light the proverbial fire under them. Like, okay, you know, the best fight boxing can possibly put on is about to start. You want people to watch you, you better give them a reason. Um, all right, and welterweight Kamaru Usman knocked the stuffing out of Sergio Moraes in the first round. Um. Not a whole lot. To, I mean, there's some interesting stuff to talk about here. Usman is, has a very, very effective, very, very heavy wrestling base. Um, prior to this, his only other finish in the UFC was over Hader Hassan. He had beaten Leon Edwards, Alexander Yakovlev, Worley Alves, and Sean Strickland. And if memory serves, he scored at least one 10-8 round in every one of those fights. He just was able to absolutely stop them from doing anything. But the big knock on him was just, okay, can you finish someone at this level? Because, I mean, Hader Hassan is, I don't even think he's still with the UFC at this point. To be fair, I didn't know that Sergio Moraes was either. Well, some of that's because Morais uh, had... No, he fought earlier this year. He beat Davi Ramos. That actually wasn't a bad fight. Um, for me, the big kind of takeaway was... wasn't just the punch, but the way he set it up was actually kind of intelligent. He was doing some stance switching. He, actually, he also landed some really nice uh, calf kicks, which kind of hobbled Morais' movement. Then, as he backed him into the fence, he entered into, you know, striking distance southpaw, threw a bit of a left that was mostly blocked, but when Marais covered up, he did so in a way that completely obstructed his vision. So as Usman throws the left, he actually steps with it to go back into orthodox, adjust his angle, so he's no longer where where he was when he threw the punch. Marais, having blocked said punch, drops his guard can't actually even see Usman where he was before and is then clobbered with a right hand from hell. It was a really nice setup. And I don't know who Usman fights next, but the UFC has taken their time with him. Again, I, I can list the list of guys I just named. They're all 
solid fighters, but none of them are, you know, elite. I mean, Sergio Moraes, even though he had a winning a winning UFC record, wouldn't call him an elite-level fighter. And some of this is that Usman debuted in the UFC with six professional fights. I don't mind that they took their time with him. I'm not complaining. But I think it's time that we take off the, kid, the metaphorical kid gloves here. He's... We've seen him against the low half of this division, and he's able to run over them. Uh, I, it's time we see him against someone nearer the top. He called out Rafael Dos Anjos. He has called out Damian Maya and Dong Yen Kim in the past. Um, you've got other guys. Uh, he and Colby Covington. If you're a fan of wrestling, he and Covington would be a very interesting wrestling match. Uh, the potential, you know, the loser of the upcoming fight between Stephen Thompson and Jorge Masvidal. There's a lot of guys for him to fight, and I think it's time we actually see him against that level of competition, because we know what he can do against the low half of things. And let's see how he does against against the the top end of the division, because I think he'll do quite well. I don't know how far he'll go, but Again, we've seen the extent of... He's accomplished all he's going to accomplish at this end of the metaphorical pool. Let's see what he does you know, towards the deep end. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you again. Um, I mean, Kamar Usman has... Fight, I mean, again, he's been impressive throughout his run, but most people weren't talking about him because while he was putting up 10-8 rounds, he wasn't even close to finishing guys. People are going to be talking about him now, and this... Uh... He was he he had put together like a five fight winning streak, uh, but four straight uh, decisions. But now that he has this stunning knockout victory, people are going to be talking about him and uh, taking notice. And he's not going to be against I think maybe a guy in the top ten uh, for his next fight. I would not be opposed to the Colby Covington fight at all. And Usman looks like he's just getting better each time out. So. If you want to try and beat him, now is the time because he looks like he's going to be a contender sooner rather than later. It would not surprise me. And uh, uh, man, when uh, when he started uh, when he started speaking in uh, Nigerian after the fight, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I there's the official language of Nigeria is English. Uh, the other, I think I first said I thought it was Swahili, which I believe is actually more. Eastern Africa than Western. I think it's Igbo, but that's a complete shot in the dark for me. Uh, all right. Pat, any Nigeria thoughts on this? No. Yeah, he, yeah he, he speaks a local dialect uh, because he is, I believe he was actually born in Nigeria. He was. Uh, all right. Pat, any thoughts on this one? Uh, you know, him finally getting a finish in the UFC outside of, you know, Hader Hassan? I mean, you know, he needed it to really set himself up for something bigger. And I don't, you know, this was, this was how it was supposed to go, really. He was in there to not only beat Sergio Moraes, but to look impressive doing it because he needed to look impressive to give them a reason to give him something more in his next fight. And it's about time we get there. And this was a performance that should be enough to get him a fight with the bottom half of the top 15. And if it doesn't, and he has to fight another, you know, Sergio Moraes. He needs to replicate this effort and show he can do it consistently. 
Bryce was not ranked, but he was having a pretty good run before this fight, too. He hadn't lost since 2012 in the UFC. Yeah, Marais but, is a but winning fighter. Yeah, here's the thing about that is, again, he hadn't lost, but again, that's since 2012, and he went unranked for that time. People forgot that he was even in the UFC. If you're Usman, you don't want to be that guy. You, you, you would rather at some point achieve some modicum of top 10, 15 level success and maybe not be in the UFC for five years consecutively, but at least you got somewhere. Here, Marais was really doing nothing and spinning his wheels and, yeah, he was there and hadn't lost with them, but he hadn't accomplished anything really either. And that's the dangerous pitfall of if you well, keep taking point, these turn-up point fights to win. He fought and beat a tough opponent who, who had a decent UFC record. That's more my point. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong, but... Last, Marais was a step up from his previous opposition. Yeah, and I'm not, again, I'm, I want to read it. I'm not saying that what Jeff said is wrong, but there's a, a, a potential for him to be one of those guys who beats these unranked fighters but never gets anywhere because those are the only guys he fights. Yeah, that that has that particular trap has <laughs> felled a lot of careers. Uh, all right, kicking off the main card, um, this was a weird fight. Uh, Justin Ledet defeats, I believe he goes by Zhu uh, for his first name, um, Zhu Aniwanya, Anyanwu? Anyanwu, excuse me. I have a weird you way know I pronounce it. that. Hang on. <laughs> I have a weird way I pronounce that guy's head name in my head so that I can spell it properly, but that's not how it's actually pronounced. So, yeah, on Anyanwu. My apologies. Uh, this was a weird fight for a couple of reasons. Um, one, Anyanwu took this on very short notice. Um, a week, less than a week, because last week when we previewed this, it was still Ledet versus uh, Sosnovsky. So, I, I'm, as with most last-minute replacement fights, they either go one of two ways. Either the guy who was always scheduled for this fight in this card looks like a million bucks, see, Mike Perry, or they do the... They fight a more intelligent but ultimately cautious fight, which is kind of what we got from Ledet here. I need to... Briefly, I don't think I don't believe you can get twenty nine twenty eight for Anyanwu reasonably. I gave him the third round, but I do not believe you can give him the first or the second at all. Um, as for the actual action, Ledet, I don't think he even threw his right hand after the first round. I would re- I would have to go back and really pay attention. But I think through rounds two and three, all he did was jab and hook off the off the left. Now, to be fair, he was very effective with it. And it was all he needed. Um, his jab is really good. It's fast. It's accurate. It's about as technically proficient a jab as you're going to find in the sport these days. Uh, he in the second round especially, he really started busting up on Yan Wu's face. Um, his nose got. I don't know, bloody, it certainly affected his face for a bit. He tore up uh, Anyanwu's right eye, which was swelling noticeably going into the third round. Uh, I just feel like, when I call this a slight letdown from Ledet, it's more because I have a very high 
set of expectations for him. And I get him fighting conservatively the first round, especially at heavyweight. If you're fighting someone who's coming in on short notice at heavyweight, A, you want to avoid the insanity and randomness of heavyweight, and B, they're probably not in real fighting shape. So they're probably going to fade. And Anyanwu did. My biggest criticism was that Ledet never really turned it up, especially in the third round. Anyanwu came out in the third and threw a flurry because he, you, know, you get your wind back between rounds, but he very visibly blew the majority of his energy doing so. And I was just, I expected a little bit more out of Ledet. He still won. He's still undefeated. There's still a lot very good about his game. I want to be very clear about all of this. I was just I was just expecting more, especially as the fight drug on, because Anyanwu faded badly and Ledet looked like he could go another two rounds without much concern. Um, so again, maybe that's on me for having high expectations, but uh, again, he still won. He still has a very bright future, but and again. A short-notice opponent switch. Again, there's things about this that I get. I expected more. Maybe that's my bad. Pat, you're a significant fan of Justin Ledet's. Um, feel free to tell me how wrong I am. No, I think you're accurate. I, I definitely think there was something that happened to his right hand along the way somewhere. Maybe he jarred his wrist, punching with it. Because he did use it fairly frequently in the first round. And I think I saw him use it maybe twice within the first 45 seconds of the second round. But other than that, I, I, he kept it at home. It was largely just used in a defensive posture. Um, he really just didn't throw it at all. And he utilized two things. He utilized his jab and the left hook off the jab. And he did it better than anybody I've seen at heavyweight do it in MMA. And if you want to watch a fight that shows you just how valid a good jab is in any combat sport, this is it because he won that fight with one hand. Um, but he also learned a lesson along the way. I think he probably felt like it was safe to just kind of take a third round off uh, because he felt they had, he had one and two in the bag. And certainly he should have. However, judges being what they are, he learned a very fortunate lesson after seeing that one judge had given at least one of the first two rounds to his opponent. Judges don't always score things the way they're supposed to. And Ledette was very fortunate that they didn't screw him out of his undefeated record because he took the third round off. You know, coasting in the 10th round of a boxing match where you clearly won nine is still not foolproof. But it's safer than coasting in the third round of a fight where there's only three rounds. And I think Ledet had a very fortunate way to learn this as opposed to other guys we've seen who maybe should have walked away with a decision. And instead we hear, and your winner by split decision, either Diego Sanchez or Leonard Garcia. Uh, that being another discussion all of its own. But uh, I, I liked elements of this fight. I liked how much the jab was utilized. I liked the movement. I liked the control of distance and using the jab to break ground. And, I liked that he was able to win a fight with one hand, which is an impressive thing to see. It's just that, A, he, you're correct. He never got out of second gear. Could potentially be based on a right-hand injury and facing a short-notice opponent, as you pointed out, where maybe he wasn't sure about what this guy brought to the table and he wanted to play it safe, which is fine. 
but it, it was disappointing on the entertainment end. I think on the fighting proficiency end, it was just fine. All right, Jeff, uh, thoughts on one of two heavyweight fights um, this evening? What did you think about this one? I didn't particularly care for the fight. It was what it was. Uh, I don't really disagree with uh, the decision uh, with Justin Ledette winning. Uh, I don't get why the fans were upset. Uh, but, uh, I mean, good for Ledette. He gets a win and remains undefeated. Uh, I don't. I mean, even at heavyweight, I'm not sure if uh, he's a guy who'll become a, a top fighter. I think it's All time right. to have him fight the top 15 guys at least now. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree there are that. fights he can have at heavyweight. There are guys he can, even at heavyweight, there are guys he can fight that can probably use uh, uh, use the paycheck. Uh, I mean, you can put him in there with. Let me see. Who's on the Andre low end? Like Olenek. Like Olenek, you can put him in, in there with Olenek. He's going to need a fight. Uh, unless he has one lined up. Um, I think he might, actually. I'd have to double-check. But, yeah, you've got Olenek. Um, Someone at that I mean, level. I mean, Travis Brown is still technically ranked. That's sad. I mean, again, you could do Travis Brown versus <laughs> – I hate myself for saying it. You can do Ledette versus Travis Brown. You could do that. If you really um, want to give Travis Brown another fight, maybe the winner of Olenek versus Curtis Blades. Uh, yeah, because that's coming up. Um, Junior Albini, uh, who showed off some pretty – I mean, if you want maybe the best boxing you could get in MMA, it might be Albini versus Ledette. Um, Albini's a Brazilian national champion boxer. I'd have to double-check that, but I know that's his back. I know his background is in okay, boxing. Okay, Albini is fighting Arlovsky. Ooh, in November. That's rough for so Andre. Maybe the winner, maybe the winner, maybe maybe the winner of that fight could work. Yeah, but um, yeah, I'd be down for that. Uh, but, all right. As yeah. for the prelim, even at heavyweight, even at heavyweight, Arlovsky can keep his job going 0 and five. <laughs> that that tells you all you need to know. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's heavyweight. All right. As for the prelims, um, we did lose a fight. Um, a few days before the event, a fight I was looking forward to, actually, a bantamweight bout between Felipe Aranches and Luke Sanders. Uh, that fell out due to uh, illness. Arantes, again, got sick. Uh, again, I was looking forward to that fight. I really was. Um, Olivier Obama-Mercier defeats Tony Martin via split decision, two 29-28s for OAM, one for Tony Martin. This whole fight comes down to the first round. And the first round could go either way. Uh, neither guy was terribly impressive. At heavyweight, Daniel Spitz TKOs Anthony Hamilton in just 24 seconds. I was utterly shocked to realize Anthony Hamilton was still in the UFC. I mean, he got knocked out by a guy, by Marcel Fortuna. Now, this is not like Mar- to say that Fortuna is a bad fighter. But Fortuna weighed in to fight Anthony Hamilton at heavyweight on short notice at like 210 pounds. I mean, this is a guy who he's always fought at light heavyweight, but there are some big light heavyweights that no, again, he weighed less than 220 and he got knocked out by a guy, you know, 40 to 50 pounds lighter, several inches shorter 
who normally fights down a division, if not two. I don't think he should be in the UFC. Um, Uriah Hall defeated Christoph Yotko via TKO in the second round. The finish here was another instance of sloppy handwork. Uh, Yotko threw a very lazy jab from the southpaw stance, and then he also got lazy with his rear hand because Hall threw a right that Yotko saw coming and half reached out to Perry, but either thought it was coming at a different angle or his arms were just blown up from the first round where he nearly finished Hall. And he couldn't get into defensive position in time, and he was done. Um, This is a real sad fall for Yotko, um, who really should have finished Hall in the first round of their fight. Uh, there There were multiple opportunities when he had the chance to get Hall out of there, and he never was able to really capitalize on them. Uh, That's not a good thing. And kicking everything off, Gilbert Burns defeated Jason Sago via knockout in the first round. Say it with me again, everybody. Lazy lead handwork. Um, Sago got baited. He kind of blocked a right and decided it's a good time to throw a lazy kind of left hook, and he didn't hide his head behind his shoulder, didn't try to move the punch back fast enough, and Gilbert Burns landed a right hand that separated his head from his shoulders, basically. Um, it was a nice nice setup, a nice execution from Gilbert Burns, who is a, is a his, his primary skill set is his jiu-jitsu game, which is significant. He's a multiple-time world champion in both gi and no gi, and is actually going to be at the uh, ADCC event in Finland, I believe, this week. Uh, but he's got power, and he's just kind of finally able to start utilizing it. So good for him. Uh, Pat, I'll start with you this time. Any thoughts on uh, the prelims? Any burning desires? Uh, just the craziness of Uriah Hall versus Christoph Jotko. Um, the funny thing is, it's the one thing we've never seen Uriah Hall do and that shows some mental toughness after enduring a really, really difficult first round. Uh, yeah, was he beneficial? Was he the beneficiary of Jotko giving everything he had in that first round to finish and not being able to? Sure, but generally that's the time when we see Hall check out and just give up, and he didn't, and he won. Shockingly, good, good for Hall. It's probably too little, too late at this point in his career, but never say never. Uh, yeah, again, a lot of credit to Hall, who, again, that, that Stan quote referencing fighting with your mental emergency break on was directed at Uriah Hall, which is an accurate sentiment. Uh, Jeff, any burning desires from that, you know, four set, that set of four fights on the prelims? Uh, Gilbert Burns, that solid knockout of Jason uh, Sago, really just kind of kicked off the night really well and sort of set the tone for the whole evening with uh, some really – Violent, exciting finishes. Uh, credit to Uriah Hall for getting that win over Christoph Yako. Um, You know, he really needed that win just to probably keep his job and spot on the roster. But I don't think I, – I think it is too late for Hall to become like sort of that top-level contender that it looked like he might be when he was on the Ultimate Fighter and he was the favorite to win and he was just head-kicking, just uh, kicking people's heads off. Uh, and then he came to the UFC, and he wasn't really able to get that done. And it just always seems to have these sort of mental hang-ups 
with with his fights. Um, but he has he has been able to do this before. He has come back uh, from adversity, from tough first rounds. He specifically, he did that in the first fight with uh, Gegard Mousasi, after uh, Mousasi just uh, really dominated him in the first round, and uh, Mousasi left his head open. So we know he's capable of doing that. It's just that he's he's very inconsistent, and he just whether whether it's mental or not, he just has trouble putting it together. Uh, and letting it go in uh, in most of his fights, really, because I mean, you look at his record. He goes on, uh, he'll win a couple and then he'll he'll lose or 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 he'll lose two in a row or or like this time he lost he lost three in a row. Granted, he lost to some really tough competitors, but uh, at least he, you know he's able to stay in the UFC and he's usually in pretty good, exciting fights, even though even though he's not like that guy we thought he would be, at least his fights uh, tend to be exciting. All right. That was UFC Fight Night 116. Thank you to everyone who followed along with uh, my coverage. Thanks to, I believe, Lowercase J, who was good about keeping me updated on other events from around the sporting world while I was doing this. Uh, Again, a lot of thanks to you guys. Uh, You keep me company when we get some serious downtime and there was some serious downtime on this card. <laughs> the UFC's pacing when you get a lot of finishes in a row is uh, is something you know, of an issue. The the funny part about it was, and I, I swear, like this had to be it. I really just think that Dana White wanted to make sure because he was at he was in attendance at the Golovkin Canelo fight. I think Dana wanted to make sure that he could not miss the main event of his own card. And so they scheduled out these long breaks with these long videos in between and 10 minutes of bantering between hosts. And like, I, I, thankfully I was, you know, I had both options in front of me, so I didn't necessarily have to pay attention to that and go through it. But if I was somebody who was just watching the UFC card, I would have been so pissed. Some of that was a couple of fights falling through at the last minute when the airtime had already been blocked out, which I understand. Some of it is you can't throw fighters up without giving them time to properly warm up. And again, I understand there's still like there, there were still significant blocks of downtime that maybe could have been avoided in this instance. Uh, all right. Next Saturday, UFC Fight Night 117. This was supposed to be the rematch between Ovin St. Preux and Mauricio Shogun Hua. Shogun And it's going to be on FXX. It is. Uh, all but one fight, actually, will be on FXX. Uh, Shogun suffered an injury. Your other half of the main event is now a returning Yushin Okami. Uh, Okami was released from the UFC after being defeated by uh, Ronaldo Jacare Souza back in 2013. Since then, he has only lost twice. He is 5-2 and two during that period of time. He lost to David Branch, where he was TKO'd in the fourth round, and lost a unanimous decision to John Fitch. Uh, because John Fitch. He's won his last four... Um, Biggest name on that? The biggest name there is Paul Bradley. He's been bouncing around um, World Series of Fighting, TFL, which is what used to be World Series of Fighting, Pancrase Deep. He's just kind of bounced around. And he's back in the UFC. Uh, This will be his second stint. 
he had a very successful UFC run the first time around from 2006 to 2013. All right. I, I don't think Okami has much of a chance here. Part of this is the size issue. Let's deal with that. Owen St. Cruz is a pretty big light heavyweight. Yushin Okami has successfully made welterweight. Uh, there, there's a size issue. Now, there's also a style issue. Yushin Okami is a grinder. Unfortunately, a lot of his grinding requires him to be the bigger man to be at its most effective, for him to get takedowns, to be on top, and to kind of just neutralize and smother you. I, I, I can't really pick him here because he's going against a guy who is pretty good at stopping most of that from happening. Uh, St. Prue just broke a three-fight losing streak when he lost to John Jones, Jimmy Manoa, and Volkan Uzdemir. I mean, they're only, you know, three of the top five or certainly three of the top seven light heavyweights in the world. I, I, again, I, just, I can't pick against Ovin St. Prue here. However, he's also been in this kind of position before where he's set up to, you know, look good, if not win outright, and then... And things just don't kind of go his way. So I will be a little bit surprised if Okami wins, but I won't be shocked. Um, I I just feel this is physically too much for Okami, especially on short notice. Uh, Jeff, Yushin Okami coming back. Uh, it's a good thing. And do you think he has? You think he's gonna you know surprise some people and take out Ovin St. Prue? At this point in his career, uh, 36 years old, and the miles he has on his body, uh, almost this will be his, I think, uh, 45th uh, pro MMA fight. Um, and going up a weight class, I don't really see that happening. Um, I know he's not going to have to go through the progress of cutting weight, uh, or I guess he won't be cutting as much weight, but he's still taking this fight on extremely short notice. He probably hasn't had time at all to get a full camp and work on his game plan and everything. And Okami is a very good uh, grappler. He's a good MMA wrestler. And uh, typically in the past, that's one of uh, Okami Cruz's excellent uh, especially the grappling and uh, his takedown defense. But I don't really think Okami will have the size where he'll, he'll be able to, uh, I guess, prolong have a prolonged battle for St. Prue and bully him around for 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 all that long. I, I, he might be able to do a little bit, but not where he'll be able to grind, uh, grind out a decision over open St. Prue. Uh, plus, the, I, I would say, in terms of knockout power, I definitely think that's not that I'm definitely uh, expecting uh, a knockout win for him. But uh, I'm not picking against St. Prue here, that being said, we can't overlook, uh, as you pointed out, Robert, the times where Jake Cruz basically set up to win. He, he infinitely disappoints us. Um, and look, he went on a stretch where he went uh, one and four uh, overall for five fights. So I'm not saying over the state Cruz is a bad fighter, but um, I mean, I think he's. He's lucky. Look, he's lucky to be ranked where he is, considering the light heavyweight division was absolutely done. 
I, quite frankly, I don't even think he deserves to be ranked uh, number six in the division. In the gutted division. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he is fortunate to be in that division. That's that's very true. All right, Pat, uh, your favorite fighter from Japan, Yushin Okami's back. Any thoughts? Uh, I love Yushin Okami. I really hope he wins uh, just because I don't like Ovin St. Pru. Uh, I think he is a huge waste of talent uh, with what little talent he has. He's not a good fighter. Uh, he's boring to watch more often than not. And I really hope Yushin Okami just knocks the dust off of himself and beats him up. Do I think it's going to happen? No, because Okami hasn't been competitive at a significant level in, you know, a decade maybe, almost. But this is just putting a name on a card to try to draw some people in because Okami is, you know, an MMA legend in Japan and longtime fans remember him. And it's it's nothing. This is silly. this is sad. This is ridiculous. Uh, to be fair, the other Okami's consideration last with... win in the UFC, uh, I'm sorry, real quick, was over Hector Lombard in March um, 2013, and he was and th- and that was his third straight win after beating Buddy Roberts and Alan Belcher. So um, not quite, not quite a decade. I would say he, no, but I would say those guys. He was, he was, with, I mean, Belcher. Belcher had talent, but Belcher never realized that talent. Yeah. And we just talked about what a bust Lombard was. Yeah, but I mean, he was still. He was. He was still. I think he was still competitive when he was let go from the UFC. And I think it was. I think it was a premature move. He lost one fight against one of the best middleweights in the world. Yeah, they maybe could have given him a little bit more you know, leash as far as losing a fight here or there. The other major consideration from what I understand as far as Okami being the one to take this fight is that on a week's notice, uh, getting another light heavyweight, uh, it's not feasible on that time frame to get the visa application through for someone from another country to be on this card. So they needed at least someone who lives in Japan. And Okami is at least somewhat recognizable. All right, your co-main event. They should have gotten is, Jushin Thunder Liger instead of Jushin Thunder Okami. Oh come on, don't you can't say that about you, no. Come on, Liger's like sixty. Yeah, but that way Liger could get a win, and his MMA record would then at least have a win on it. <laughs> okay, that's because fair. he uh, could either hit the palm strike or the rolling thunder kick. Let's get let's get uh, let's get Sakuraba in there and really sweeten the deal. Oh, God. All right. Before this gets... I mean, really, you have Satoshi Ishii, right? Who kind of sucks, but... he uh, Can he make 205? Eh, you tell St. Peru he doesn't have to cut weight. Let him fight at heavyweight. I mean, who, like, like, who else is there? Kaz Nakamura? I don't know. I, I, I genuinely do not know what other, like, heavyweight or, you know, light heavyweight to heavyweights uh, from Japan would be rel- would be you know, in a position to take this fight. So, uh, anyway, your co-main event: Claudia Gadelia versus Jessica Andrade. This kind of, for my money, this determines Rock. the second best strawweight in the world. Uh, Claudia has only ever lost to Joanna Jacek. She just smoked Karolina Kovalkiewicz in her last fight. Andrade is, I believe, coming off of that failed bid for the belt. Where, uh, yep. He had like 
almost nothing to offer you on over that entire fight. Uh, I rewatched. Yeah, that, that was fight. the last fight. Yeah, I rewatched that fight not too long ago, and I don't think I was able to adequately convey watching it live how one-sided and that was. Adelia probably gave Yoan uh, her toughest title fight too. Yeah, She's probably her uh, toughest. Uh, probably her toughest. I think her fight to, uh, overall. Yeah, I was going to say, say Jeff. I think I think both of those two fights were probably the two toughest fights she's had in the UFC. But yeah, for yeah. sure. At, at, at the very least, her two closest fights, at least. Yeah. Uh, all right. As for this fight itself, there's some interesting things here. Jessica Andrade is kind of a tank. That being Especially said, at this weight. Yeah. The biggest issue that Jessica runs into is she's a less she's a slower of foot version of John Lineker. John <laughs> Lineker for it, it because that's how she likes to fight. She likes to get close. She it's likes a good to go comparison. What? It's a good comparison. I I've never heard or thought of it, but it really it is a good comparison. Yeah, they both like to get close. They like hooks going body to head. They both got power. The biggest difference is John Lineker is actually pretty good at cage cutting, at forcing the action. Jessica Andrade isn't. It's the biggest, I believe it's the biggest limiting factor in her game is that if you don't back straight up into the fence when she pressures you, she is going to be chasing you the whole fight. I mean, Angela Hill had a lot of success against her, utilizing straight punches or elbows or knees as Andrade was trying to bull forward, but Hill, for all the improvements she made, was still struggling to actually circle away from the cage anytime she got there. What happens more often than not is what happens to her when she fought Joanna, where she was lucky to land three good punches around because Joanna kept you know, circling and moving and fighting in open space and sniping, and Andrade is just only has one methodology and because she couldn't cage cut, it wasn't very effective. Now, Gadelia is not nearly the striker or when I say striker in this instance, I don't just mean offensive striker, but you know, doesn't necessarily possess the footwork that someone like Ioana does, but it's a relatively easy read to make. The other problem that Jessica could run into here is that, Getting close to Claudia means she can take you down. And while Andrade is a good grappler, I don't think she wants to engage in prolonged exchanges on the mat with Gedalia. That That's a recipe for disaster. So I'm very interested in seeing how these two will fight each other, what choices they'll each make, whether Andrade is get, you know, has improved her footwork and you know, uh, just how she moves to effectively close distance and cage cut, whether Gedalia wants to stay at distance and just avoid, you know, fighting in close with a more, with a shorter, but more physically powerful woman, especially as a puncher. Uh, what happens if they go to the ground? Because again, Gedalia is a better grappler, but Andrade is certainly no slouch. I tend to think whoever gets top position will be the more dominant party here. Whereas, you know, other times it's just we're on the mat fighting. Someone's winning, even if they're on bottom. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I can't re- I can't pick against Claudia Gedalia unless she's fighting Joanna at strawweight. 
I I just think she's the second best strawweight in the world. But I really am looking forward to the intricacies of how these two match up. I, this is the fight I'm actually looking forward to the most. So you know, going with Gedalia, but uh, don't you know, not trying to count out on draws. Uh, this should be a good one. Pat, I'll start with you for this one because I know you're a fan of Gedalia's. Uh, how do you see this one going? Uh, I, I love this fight, and this fight's going to be the reason why I tune into this card. Um, I, it's very interesting because each woman doesn't have the stylistic uh, representation of what the other fighter struggles with. And it's not even necessarily that Gedalia struggles, but Gedalia's one obstacle that she is not able to overcome is Joanna. And the way Joanna has had success against her is partially by outlasting her later into the fights they've had, but also by limiting the work that Claudia was able to do when Claudia did have the, the advantageous position in, in not only uh, getting her down and on top of her, but in, in the clinch, Claudia wasn't able to do any real damage when she had position there. And she actually had more success when she was able to land that odd strike from outside against Joanna just by timing the movement a little bit. Um, for Jessica, Jessica struggles again. If you give her a lot of movement and fight her on the outside where she can't get in close, bull you, or hit you with short hooks, elbows, etc., or grab a hold of you. So it's really interesting in that stylistically they're each going to likely go at each other to try to go where they want the fight to go. I think that Claudia is better equipped technically and that Andra, Jessica Andre has to push her physical advantages in terms of her size and strength. And she needs to do that early because if she can get Claudia tired down the stretch, there's a chance she can steal this fight. However, she's going to have to get in close and Claudia, while she doesn't show it often, has a really good right hand that she oftentimes will set up her takedowns with because she gets people biting on the thread of the right hand. She's not a knockout puncher, but she lands the right hand often, and she throws it very well. And when you get hit with a punch like that and it stings you, you want to do what you can to defend it, and that opens up the near leg to Claudia being able to grab a hold of it. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see her use the jab to try to set up that right hand down the pipe to open up the takedown. I think she's just a better technical fighter all around, and she may struggle at times just with Jessica's raw strength. But if she makes her, if she makes Jessica work a lot early, then the cardio is not an issue, and she can put herself in a, in a position to take this fight, which I think she will. I think she gets her late on the ground via TKO. All right, Jeff, what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, again, this is the fight I'm probably most looking forward to. This is uh, the what do you best think? fight. This is the best fight on the card uh, on paper, at least. Uh, both these women are badasses. I, I think they're among two of my favorite strawweight fighters to watch. Uh, I've got to give the edge uh, to Claudia here, so I'm not breaking uh, from the panel. I just think Claudia is a little more well-rounded. I think she has a more developed uh, grappling game than Andrade, who is also submittable. And um, I think Andrade might be able to bully Cadelia a little bit due to her, you know, probably having 
a little more mass and pure power than Gedelia, but I think just in the overall skill set, um, you know, Gedelia might drop drop around, but I think she wins the fight. And it probably favors both that this fight uh, is only three rounds instead of five, which we saw affected them uh, in their title fights with Ioana. Uh, so that that being said, I'm picking Gedelia to win, and uh, I'm picking her to win by submission. Also, just to just to add, this is the first uh, time where Claudia is going to spend her full fight camp in Albuquerque, where she's now moved to full time. Uh, I think she's getting better. Uh, I think she's getting better each time out, and I think it shows. Yeah, I'm, I'll be very interested to see what changes kind of take place in this fight uh, with her new camp. All right. Speaking of. And I mentioned this last week, but I think both of you had signed off by this point. Speaking of guys you might be surprised are still on the UFC, Takanori yeah, Gomi is fighting. I was genuinely surprised that Gomi was actually still fighting in the UFC. But he did fight earlier this year, surprisingly. I'd forgotten about that. I remembered that. I also remembered that he lost to John Tuck, of all people. I, I thought that was it. I thought he was done after that. I really did. Uh, he's fighting Dong Yun Kim. This is not the stun gun. This is the maestro. Uh, this has to be Gomi's last hurrah in the UFC. I keep saying that. One of these times I'm going to be right. He has lost four fights in a row. His last win was in 2014 over Isaac Valley Flag. Now, I thought he kind of got the wrong end of the stick when he fought Diego Sanchez, and I thought he won that fight, but it wasn't a big enough differential to make me scream about the split decision going to Sanchez. And he's been finished in all four of his last losses. He's been TKO'd by Miles Jury, Joe Lozon, and Jim Miller, and then submitted by John Tuck. And he's 38. Damn, he's old. For the fight game, especially lightweight fighting. That's, I didn't know he was that old. I mean, fighting at lighter weight classes gets harder the older you get. It's, you know, heavyweight and light heavyweight are very different from the rest of the division. Uh, these two are going to punch each other in the face. Uh, Maestro here made his debut on short notice and was knocked out via slam by Dominique Steele, but... He also took at least one of those rounds, and it was a crazy fight. He had an absolutely insane uh, fight with Marco Polo Reyes that was at UFC 199. It was utter insanity. And he's coming off of a unanimous decision win over Brendan O'Reilly that I don't recall even being that close. I think he pretty clearly won that. I, I just can't pick Gomi at this point. I mean, at his age, with those miles, at the place where he is in his career, that being said, if there's a fight he can win, it's against someone who's going to stand in front of him, and I'm pretty sure Kim will. It's someone who's hittable, and Kim is hittable. But, I mean, I still can't, even in a matchup that should favor him, on his, in his home country where he is being given the most winnable fight possible in many respects, I still can't pick Gomi here. I just can't do it. I think he's going to 
try to br- try to punch. His sloppy style of punching is going to either miss or you know gas himself out throwing them. And Kim's superior box is while Kim is very hittable, he is he has much straighter punches. I think Kim's going to beat him to the punch, and I think Kim's going to finish him. And Gomi, it is cr- it's not, but but Gomi also has no takedown and grappling defense. His his submission defense has been terrible since his pride days. When he got submitted, I think by Marcus Marcus Aurelio, oh, he was champion of the of the of the pride lightweight division. So, I feel like if he wanted to. Even a guy like Dong Young Kim could take him down and submit him easily if that's what he wanted. Uh, yeah, I again, I can't, I can't pick Komi at this point. Um, I got Kim, I got him via finish, but I think these, I think we're gonna have a lot of fun along the way for this one. Uh, I think these two are gonna, these two are gonna scrap. Uh, all right, Jeff. Uh, does Gomi finally get the big win in his home country in the UFC, or is uh... Uh, not at all? He's gonna lose. All right. Quite Pat... frankly, I, I hope he retires after this fight. Ditto. Pat, Gomi's still fighting. Does he finally get a win? Um, sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, this fight's not good. Uh, neither one of these guys is going anywhere except for hopefully retirement or a small organization because they don't really have anything to offer. Um, whoever hits who first wins. And um, flip a coin, I'll say Gomi hits him first and he wins. All righty. At light heavyweight, because reasons, Gokan Saki, who is one of the better hev- light heavyweight, heavyweight and light heavyweight kickboxers in the world. Uh, he's a former, I believe he's a former K1 champion. Uh, he's been to tournament finals for them in the past. I mean, the only guys he's lost to in kickboxing since 2011, uh, he lost to Overeem in 10. That was his only loss in 2010. So if we count that, he's lost to Overeem, Badrhari, Semi Schilt, and Rico Verhoeven. Uh, Schilt was kind of on his last legs when they fought. Still managed to—I don't know if Schilt even still fights. He might. Uh, Rico's the best heavyweight kickboxer in the world, and Badrhari is not too far behind that. Uh, Saki's a legitimate kickboxer. He's also only had one MMA fight that he lost pretty badly. I, I was really surprised when the UFC signed him. Uh, I don't know why. I mean, light heavyweight might suck as a division, but I didn't realize they were internally this desperate. Anyway, Saki's fighting Henrique Da Silva. Uh, da Silva on a three-fight losing streak. He was submitted by Paul Craig, lost his decision to Jordan Johnson, and was knocked out in 22 seconds by Iwan Kutelaba. This is a uh, this is about as soft a touch as Saki's gonna get, even at light heavyweight. And I still can't pick him. Um, I won't be surprised if he wins, but I think De Silva's a smart enough fighter to get this thing to the mat and submit the guy who is not 
equipped to deal with his grappling. If De Silva tries to stand and fight and to stand and throw with this guy, that I mean, a that's a terrible decision. But it, uh, no, just again, if he tries to fight standing up or even in the clinch for prolonged periods of time, I I don't. I would have to question his ability to make decisions relative to his fighting career because why would you ever do that? Um, Pat. Okay, A, is Saki going to win this? And B, for people who may have not seen him kickbox, have you seen anything? Is there anything about his skill set you think will translate well? Anything you're looking forward to about this? Oh, I mean, he he throws really good low kicks if you haven't seen him. Uh, the first time I actually really got to see him fight, he was fighting another guy who transitioned to MMA, Tyrone Spong. Um and he broke his leg. And it was kind of that weird uh, Anderson Silva-esque leg break. But he's beating good guys. He beat Daniel Gita, um, which was a huge win for him. And he's he actually beat Overeem with one hand in a kickboxing bout. So there is he, uh, stuff to like broke. there. I remember that. Yeah. Overeem actually... Basically, he already had a broken hand going into that fight, and then Overeem really busted up his arm with a kick, and he still went on to win the fight, which is impressive. But he went through a lot of uh, inactivity, and he has, like like we talked about, he has one MMA bout that happened in 2004. Um, I don't know. I think he's just maybe trying something new again here. He's 33 years old. I think he'll win this fight. I think it's a soft touch, as soft as fight as he'll get. Um, he might just go in there and immediately assert his striking and try for the quick knockout the same way Coup de La did. And, uh, yeah, that'll happen. All right, Jeff, uh, again, the debut of world-renowned kickboxer Gokan Saki. Uh, how do you think this fight goes? Jeff, you there? Sorry, I was having some technical issues there. Uh, Enrique De Silva wins. Um, it's going to be a boring decision. All right. Um, you know, I actually think I'm going to call that as our point of I'm just going to read the rest of these. And then we'll just do burning desires on these because I don't want to go into too much detail. Um, okay. The, the next two fights are also on the main card. The rest of those are all prelims. Only the last fight is on Fight Pass. Um, Teruto Ishihara is fighting Rolando Dai. Um, Ishihara might be the worst featherweight in the UFC because he lost to Artem Lobov. Um, but uh, I don't know. Dai's a decent enough kickboxer, but he comes from the uh, kind of the Thai style. And that's susceptible to elements of what Ishihara does. I'll go with Ishihara. Uh, Mizuto Hirota is fighting Charles Rosa. This is actually not a bad fight. Um, Hirota lost to Alexander Volkanovsky. I'll go with Rosa. Charles Rosa is a pretty good fighter. Um, His only losses in the UFC are to Dennis Seaver, Yair Rodriguez, and Shane Burgos. And I actually seem to recall thinking he won the Rodriguez fight. Um, Kieda Nakamura. Good for him still fighting. 
A lot of guys like that on this card. Um, Nakamura lost to Eliza Zaleski Dos Santos. He's fighting Alex Morono. Um, Morono got knocked out by Nico Price. We'll go with Morono, but be rooting for Nakamura. At flyweight, Juicy A Formiga is fighting Ulka Sasaki. Um, Formiga lost to Ray Borg. Formiga is one of those poor guys in the UFC who, as a flyweight, is good, but has never been able to really get over the hump. Uh, his only losses are to John Dodson, Joseph Benavides, Henry Cejudo, and Ray Borg, all of whom are very good fighters. Um, this is tough because Formiga might just, you know, lay another egg. And Sasaki's actually pretty good. Yeah, that's tough. I'll go with Sasaki there, actually. I'm, I'm probably picking against the grain there. Um, Sayori Kondu. I believe she's a professional wrestler. Or was. Just Sayori. Okay, Sayori. Um, oh, she's one of those... Is, I'm thinking of somebody of another group of women, aren't I? Yeah, I am. Dang. So I'm thinking of Are the group you, of three that have, that have appeared in Lucha Underground. But, uh, oh, no, she's not one of them, thankfully. Anyway, uh, Siri is 5-0. and That's actually not too bad. Hasn't no, she's fought this year. She's actually stayed pretty busy. Jeez. Um, I was kind of impressed with uh, Chan Mijian, her opponent, when she debuted, but this seems like a fight. I don't know. This is tough. These two are going to... Jian's uh, scrappy. She's willing to fight. Man, that's again, this is kind of rough. I don't know enough about either woman to really make a definitive pick here. I'll go with Siri. Eh, why not? Might regret that. At welterweight, Shinzo Anzai is fighting Luke Jamo. Uh Anzai lost to Alberto Mina. Oh he had oh he beat Zapata after Zapata had that injury. Kinda remember the injury. Uh Jamo beat Dominique Steele. I'll go with Jamo here. Um, and then on a lone fight, pass fight, um, Daichi, uh, Daichi Abe? That can't be Abe. Not with a first name like that. <laughs> da- I'll go with Abe and be prepared to sound like an idiot. Daichi Abe is fighting Hyunkyu Lim. Uh, Lim needs a win badly. Um, he's on a two-fight losing streak. He was finished in both of them by Neil, by, uh, Neil Magny and Mike Perry. He he really needs a win here. I'll go with Lim. I don't know anything about his opponent. Uh, all right, Jeff, I'll start with you. From the rest of those fights, any burning desires, anything you want to talk about? Uh, Formiga versus Sasaki, I think, is a decent flyweight matchup. Um, some of the other fights might surprise me, but nothing really too compelling uh, from my perspective. All right, Pat, anything, any other you know fights, fighters you're particularly interested in? Anything you want to shine a spotlight on? I want to see the UFC debut of Siri. Um, she's held the CMLL Women's Championship. She's held championships for Smash. She uh, has held championships for Hustle. She's even held a championship in Canada. She's been with the Pancrase promotion, which is basically the, the Japanese uh, equivalent of legitimate pro wrestling. Uh, Pancrase, more than anything, is all about catches catch ken style grappling. And she's very good at it thus far. She has a 13 and one kickboxing record to supplement that. So I'm really interested in seeing 
her on the professional stage and what she can do. Uh, I know she's not a newcomer to combat, but it's always interesting to see when professional wrestlers make this transition. And because she is so popular in Japan, it, uh, it'll be really interesting to see the crowd reaction and what, you know, the potential future may hold for her doing this. Uh, her opponent is uh, Sean Mijian. She's 20 years old from South Korea. Uh, Owen won in the UFC, lost her debut to J.J. Aldrich um, last June, in case anyone was wondering. All right. That Again, next Saturday, feel free to stop by and follow along with my coverage of that in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. All right. Uh, before we move on to MMA news, let's go ahead and talk about last night's fight between the between uh, Gennady Golovkin and Saul Canelo Alvarez. Talk about a big drama show. Um, all right, full disclosure. certainly got a big drama show last night. Sorry, Kennedy. Um, full disclosure, I haven't seen the whole fight yet. I've been watching it uh, in bits and pieces during the day so far. Just... I plan on, like, once this is done, I'll be able to sit down and actually watch it. That being said, even with all, even with what I've seen, which I believe is only through round five or six. First of all, let me say this. It's an absolute shame that a great fight, and this was a really great fight, especially if you love boxing, is so overshadowed by judging incompetence. It's, it's an utter shame, because this was a... Just in terms of action, this was a great fight. This was a great fight. I, Adelaide Bird scored this bout. Uh, the official result was a draw. It was a split draw. Uh, one judge had it, 114-114. Um, I believe, what, 116-113 one, one one or 1... No, was the other one, one, one Dave Moretti scored 115-113 for Gennady Golovkin. And Adelaide Bird, living up to her reputation, scored the fight 118 to 110, which, if you're talking in terms of rounds, is a 10 to 2 margin for Canelo Alvarez. Yeah, even only seeing what I have seen of the fight so far, that is an utterly indefensible score. That might be the single worst scorecard submitted in the last seven years. Not, not just, I mean, I've seen bad decisions, all right? I mean, we all have. Everyone listening to this show has seen fights that have resulted in a decision that they thought was terrible. That being said, over the course of only a three-round fight, much as I will yell about it every now and then, I do understand that there's only three rounds. Even over a five-round fight. There's still only five rounds, and frequently those will come down to a round or two that are the swing rounds, the others being easy to score. So while the, res- while the actual result might be something that I think is wrong, if it hinges on a single round, I, I think I've just kind of in some respects come to terms with the fact that we have incompetent judges working within a system that forces them to essentially be perfect on first draft without adequate technological aids. So if it comes down to one round and someone is stupid about one round, 
I don't like it, and I will yell about it, but some of that is just kind of coming with the territory as far as how the sport is adjudicated. How you watch that fight and get 10 rounds for Alvarez is a level of sustained ineptitude that I'm not entirely sure even processes with me. Again, this was th- that might be the single worst individual scorecard submitted over the last seven years. This might be the worst decision in boxing since Leonard and Hagler. And bear in mind, there have been some dubious decisions since then. But who this is the was... judge who scored a fight Mayweather won a draw? Didn't that happen a few years ago? No, what happened was uh, actually it's funny you bring that up, Jeff. When Canelo Alvarez fought Floyd Mayweather in what was deemed a pretty clear victory for Floyd, it was a majority decision because one judge scored that fight a draw. The other two got it right. They gave the decision to Mayweather, but one judge had it six rounds to six, 114 to 114, as if Canelo deserved that. Yeah, yeah. Mayweather won, but one of the judges had scored it a draw for some reason. It wasn't yeah. Adelaide. Yeah, that was. No, that was the Canelo fight. And this fight, yeah, look, and, this, and this was so bad, it became a national news story, and, like, the governor of Nevada actually commented on it. Like, so, when it happens in boxing, they're like, crap, we got to do something. But then Adelaide Bird is still, is still working as a judge for combat sports, and she's been a blight on the M- from, from the whole, co- not just boxing, but uh, the whole combat sport community uh, for years now. I don't know how, I mean, for the good of, for the good of combat sports, Adelaide, you have to, you're going to have to recuse, you're going to have to recuse yourself. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, again, I, there's only so much I can say about this because I have yet to actually finish watching the fight, but. I mean, there was a joke on Twitter, right? As this fight was going on, as they were entering, I can't remember if it was the 10th or 11th round, right near the end of the fight, someone on Twitter joked, you know, if they have the same, the substance being, if they had the same judges scoring this fight that scored Mayweather-McGregor, then Alvarez would be up 10 rounds. I mean, the irony being that the joke was not far off. I mean, Pat, you know, you love boxing. I, the floor is yours. I, I, I'm more interested. In, I really want to hear your perspective on this. Uh, take it away. You have the history. You have the passion for this. The floor again. The floor is yours. I scored this fight nine rounds to three for Gennady Golovkin. I think, at worst case scenario, this fight should have been scored. Seven to five for Golovkin. Giving Canelo every possible round you could give him, he at best only won five rounds. At best. And you really have to stretch in order to give him one of those rounds. Four is four rounds for him, it's arguable. I don't agree with it, but it's arguable. But when a guy clearly wins at least seven of twelve rounds, that is no question who won the fight especially when there are no knockdowns, there are no point deductions, et cetera, et cetera. What you saw in this fight itself was a lot of good action, but what you saw was the pressure style 
the intelligent pressure applied by Gennady Golovkin forced Canelo Alvarez to move much faster than he wanted to early, to have to throw a lot more punches than he wanted to early. And as a result, he didn't have the firepower he needed later in the fight to be competitive. He didn't have the ability to stay off of the ropes where Golovkin was able to pin him and do good work. And even when he did land punches, which he did land some clean punches along the way, they didn't have the snap on them because he didn't have the power left because of how much Golovkin made him work early. That was calculated. That was a beautiful long-term strategy that played out in his hands. To Canelo's credit, Canelo kept fighting, kept trying, had moments where he stood in there and took Golovkin's best shots and didn't appear overly hurt. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. However, this was marred by atrocious judging. And in reality, all three judges should be ashamed of themselves how they scored this fight. You have the aforementioned Adelaide Bird, who gave 10 rounds of this fight to Canelo Alvarez. That is indefensible. That is disgusting. And that is wrong. She has been doing this in every, seemingly every fight she is involved in in boxing. She has done this in seemingly every MMA fight we've seen her judge. And that includes tough exhibition bouts. Leonard Garcia versus Nam Fan. Being the prime example. Hey, hang on, hang on. Being the absolute prime example. She was the only one who scored that fight for Fan, and I think she was the only one who got that one right. In a bit of full disclosure. I thought sure? Fan won that fight. Th- that being said, her entire history is predicated basically on getting these fights wrong in a really horrendous way. And last night was her most egregious scoring to date. She should be barred from combat sports. It was disgusting to see. She should have nothing to do with anything involving combat sports. It was unless you're using her as an example of how you judge fights poorly. Uh, Robert, because, I'm sorry. She gave that fight to Leonard Garcia. Screw her to hell. Oh wait, she gave the fight. Wait, hang on. She only Camijo gave it to Fan. Fan oh. won that fight, and Camijo mis- was no. the only one who scored it for him. My mistake, my mistake. I thought she was the one who gave that to Fan. No, because the fight in question is no, the tough Juni, uh, finale Juni fight Chiro between Fan and Garcia. That I'm Fan sorry, clearly just, won. I'm like, yeah, Fan won the fight, but she scored it 29-28 for Garcia. Yeah, two of them did. I mean, that fight was and so even, bad, they had and to do even a rematch. As bad as that was, it's not as bad as what we saw from her last night. It was disgusting. Dave Moretti. Cat, is this so bad she will be forced to step down like C.J. Ross after she scored Mayweather Alvarez a draw? No, it should be, but it won't. And that's unfortunate. And it's, it's even worse because she's involved in both MMA and boxing, whereas to my knowledge, C.J. Ross was not an MMA judge, so at least couldn't pollute that sport. Uh, again, that being said, you have Dave Moretti, who also judged this bout. 
Robert mentioned the Marvin Hagler-Sugar Ray Leonard fight. Dave Moretti scored that fight for Sugar Ray Leonard to bring up Dave Moretti's judging history. And he had the most justifiable scorecard because he scored the fight for Golovkin. He scored it in the 7-5 to five margin, 115 to 113, which means he gave every possible round to Canelo that he could in a legalistic way that wouldn't be overtly controversial, but he did. Here's, a, here's another uh, little-remembered fight for Bird. He scored a fight uh, between Melvin Gouliard and Jamie Varner that Varner clearly won. <laughs> She scored it 30-27 for Melvin Gouillard when the other two judges scored it 30-27 30-27 the opposite way. Yeah, I remember that. Remember that fight. So we had a – she was the only one who did it. Granted, one of those was Cecil Peoples, and he's horrible too, but come on. Cecil Peoples got it right, and she scored (laughs) every round the opposite way. That should never happen. Never. Yeah, yeah keep going, and Pat. so, we, you know, we go, we go on to Dave Moretti, who I think is a horrible judge. He gets them right occasionally, but not anywhere near a consistent enough level to be considered a good judge. He should not be. And even he got this one partly right. Partly right. I, I, I don't know that Golovkin's people looked at the judges of this fight and were, I don't know why they didn't object, because the other judge for this fight, who scored this fight a draw, which is, again, indefensible, is Don Trella. Don Trella also scored Gennady Golovkin's fight with Daniel Jacobs. There's nothing wrong with having a close margin of victory for Golovkin in that fight. I think most people thought he won it pretty clearly, But the rounds that he gave to Jacobs were highly questionable. Highly questionable. And there's a reason why the majority of the fights that he gets on the East Coast, which is where he's mainly based, he does a lot in New England, upstate New York, Rhode Island, those types of fights. He very rarely gets a significant fight to judge because he's bad at it. He's not good. He doesn't score fights well. And I think the scary thing about this is these people get consistent work doing this. Teddy Atlas last night was approached by ESPN to, you know, air his thoughts on this. And he talked about this and he basically kind of gave the same speech that if you're a history buff at all, You'll remember Chief Joseph's I Will Fight No More Forever speech because he talked about how it's wrong and it's horrible and there should be changes, and I am disgusted, but am I going to walk away? I can't because I've got 40 years in this. This is all I know. What else am I supposed to do? We're stuck with this, and it's sad because there's really nothing that can be done about it because the people in control don't want to do anything about it. And we're not going to see a change. We're going to see these same assholes. I'm sorry. That's what you are. 
You're all stinking assholes who don't know that you're an asshole from a hole in the ground because you score these fights absurdly. You hurt people because you're all on the fucking take because the agenda here was to push Canelo, and it's very clear that that's what happened. And you thought he had the ability to do it because Golovkin looked like he was slowing down in his last fight. And what he did was came out here and beat Canelo concisely, decisively, and you didn't give it to him because you thought it would be better if Canelo walked away without a loss. So fuck you, Oscar De La Hoya, for manipulating this, because you did. You're a scumbag, snorting coke off of strippers, doing what you do. The hell with you. You're bad for boxing, and you're an overrated fighter to begin with. You never won the big one in your career. You lost all your significant fights, and you're trying to live on through Canelo and live off of him like a goddamn leech, because that's what you are. And you manipulate circumstances to rob the best middleweight that we've seen since Bernard Hopkins, the best middleweight we've potentially seen since Marvin Hagler of what should have been his shining moments, beating a great young fighter who you protect and shy away from these fights. And that's why he wasn't competitive in this, because you protect him from people like Golovkin and don't let him realize his potential. And you get judges who can be bought and manipulated to guarantee a rematch for a bigger payday down the line as if your boy's got a better chance in a rematch that happens immediately because he doesn't. And you shame a sport. You shame everybody involved, and you steal. You steal a moment from somebody who works for weeks, for months, for years for it. You steal a moment from Canelo because he gets to be the bad guy in a situation. He didn't have control over the judges, but you did. You three judges should be ashamed of yourselves. The Nevada State Athletic Commission should be ashamed of itself. De La Hoya doesn't have any shame. Or I'd tell him he should be ashamed of himself, too. But he can go fuck himself. And it's disgusting. All right. Let's take this uh, to Congress, the Supreme Court. Let's get Adelaide Bird barred from combat sports. That's what I want. I would be in support of a constitutional amendment prohibiting Adelaide Bird or any potential progeny from ever judging a combat sport or anything really in a professional capacity ever again. Uh, All right. Big note of the week, as far as news goes that I want to touch on Uh, John Jones B sample came back uh, confirming the positive test from his a sample. He has been officially stripped of the UFC light heavyweight championship. I mean, that's not really big news. It's the B sample is always, it's almost always positive. Who who had the B sample? Yeah, there was the one the female fighter. Um, gosh, why can't I remember this? She had Courtney a win. Casey. They said she. It might have been Courtney Casey, where she had a win. They said no, you have elevated levels of testosterone. You can't, no, and then they got the B sample, which tested perfectly normal. Maybe but that's the only real notable. Silveroni against Frank it? Shamrock. Did that? Did that happen? No, he 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 tested positive for a different drug in his B sample, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but. <laughs> which makes all the sense in the world. But, no, that was the only time I remember it, is they said, oh, you have a, and she fought it, and she won, and the second sample came back clear. But uh, this is, it's you know, not, this is confirming. It's nine times out of ten. It's like uh, nine we'll go, ten. We can go 99 out of 100 at this point, if that's the only what? one we can that's, come up with. Good. And you know what? That's a good record, if, if you yeah. can have that many instances. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my, and, my point here is that, 
with the it's not that you know this is big news in the sense that it, again most of the time if your a sample pops your b sample will as well with the, with it being confirmed there's this is like the important step in the process that allows the ufc to take action going forward in this instance again stripping jones of the belt and reverting it to daniel cormier i take issue with the latter half of this equation you strip John Jones of the belt, fine. Uh, I understand that. That's what you should do, realistically. I'm. What bothers me about this is that this situ, this exact same well, thing has strip, happened in they, the past. Oh, California overturned the decision, so yeah. they had no choice. Which they they finally have that precedent in place because they used to not overturn decisions when drug samples came back positive. I think back to um, uh, the rematch between, uh, my gosh, why am I blanking now? Hoist and... Uh, Sakuraba. Oh. Yeah, Sakuraba. Hoist came back testing positive for anabolics, and yet the decision stood, which was, you know, wrong. Weird. But th- that was the CSAC at the time, which was a joke. At least they finally gotten that part right. But here's the more damning thing that we're looking at. And this is important. You know, for his abilities within the cage, yeah, John Jones may have been the best fighter in MMA we've ever seen. But what you're seeing is the personal unraveling of somebody who has a very serious drug issue, potentially more issues beyond that, and is unwilling to commit to reality and get the help he needs. When you come out the way he did and are adamantly denying that you use this and you're swearing on your children and your, your God that you worship and all these things. And the sample still comes back that, yeah, you're using this. It tested positive twice. That's indicative of a very serious denial on his part of what he's doing in his life. And I'm not just talking about the the performance enhancers. This is a guy who's had issues with cocaine, been to rehab, had issues with DUIs, This is somebody who is on a very dangerous path in his life to very dangerous things. And no, we're not being dramatic about that because this is now bringing it to the forefront. Sometimes you don't understand how bad something is until something like this happens where he's not only exposed to somebody who cheated in the fight, which is bad enough in itself, but his adamant denial of everything shows that he's not in touch with reality he is denying a lot of things in his life besides responsibility. And it's a really scary thing to see develop well, because now well, he's going to face a suspension for X amount of time, a, a multiple year suspension right now, if I'm not mistaken, is what's going to be levied. And when he likely. can't occupy himself with a fight camp, when he can't occupy himself with having a focus in that regard, that can lead to a lot of dangerous things down the road. Well, I think one thing that a lot of people are ignoring is look at his brothers who are professional athletes in the NFL. Look what, and look, and look what they're up to. So it's not just, it runs in the family. And I mean, you, you mean to tell me his, like his brothers are doing that stuff too. And it never gets back to him. He's never involved in, in that. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I I don't know. Again, I imagine uh, if Jones only gets a two-year suspension off of this, he'll be lucky. 
Uh, four years would, is not out of the question by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, my, and this is one of those things that I, I'm not going to add to what you guys said about Jones as a, you know, as a person. I, I can't disagree with it, and I don't think I can meaningfully add to it. I agree with you. Here, Arthur Jones was suspended from four, from, uh, four games by the NFL Colts. Colts excuse me. Um, he tested positive he tested for performance positive. enhancers, and Chandler, Chandler, the other brother, showed up under K2, which is, if you guys aren't aware, synthetic weed. They, there was a loophole where he got out of it because technically it's legal under Massachusetts state law. He was playing for the Patriots at the time, but the report was he showed up in an, an uncooperative, disoriented state, was all over the place. So he was admittedly using this, this synthetic drug. He apparently had, like, some sort of drug overdose. Um, yeah, which is it, common with K, with that particular drug because of right. the synthetics they use to replace THC. And I know, that's uh, all, the, you think that's all Chandler was doing, though, Pat? I mean, when you I'm not going to speculate because there's no – we're not going to – we're not going to – you know, we're not going to prove anything one way or another. But okay. the reckless behavior is the pattern that we have there with the drug use. All, all three of them. Yeah. Yeah, in ter- in terms of not not again not just performance enhancers. Two out of the three have been caught under the influence of performance enhancers. Two of the three have been caught under the influence of narcotics or synthetic narcotics. That's a dangerous dangerous thing going on. Where you got to wonder, are these guys pushing each other to keep going like this? Where's the end game? What's I think gonna, did they... Jones is a sociopath, and you want to know why I say that? I don't say that lightly. I say that I, because I, I, I think you're I think you're you're on to something with that because this is a guy who's been apologetic about everything and I'm and I'm focused and I'm serious and he just goes and does the same thing again. Where is any look, indication of conscience look, in there? Look, I think he's a socio. Here's the reason I feel he's a sociopath. I mean, look, people get into accidents and and you know you know it's human nature. People have been in car accidents. They admit fault. Maybe they don't. But he was in a car accident, and he hit a woman who was pregnant, and he ran from and he ran from the scene. He he not only did he run, he went back, got crap out of his car, and then ran away again. He ran away twice from hitting from hitting a pregnant woman in a car accident where he was the one who was responsible and where he was at fault, and he ran away. And if you could, he had a big, like, little, oh, poor, woe is me, walk and talk with Ariel Hawani after that. And you can go back and watch that. And, you know, just his whole demeanor, he didn't feel guilty. I really believe he never felt guilty or like he had done something wrong through that whole thing. And I felt that way happening as well. A lot of people, you know, tried to defend him by saying like the commission shouldn't have tested him for that. And maybe they shouldn't have, and maybe they did. They make shouldn't. A for test. But I mean, do you, I, I mean, even if, even if they shouldn't have, it's still a problem that you're snorting cocaine the weekend. Uh, you're having the biggest fight of your career again, against an undefeated uh, Olympic athlete and one of the best fighters in the world. And, then, and again, for all his for all his apologetics and stuff like that, he still comes out and makes the comment in the lead up to this that he's, he's not no. Sorry. But I'm not saying he is. I'm not saying he is, and this is going to illustrate that point. 
for all of his, yeah. you know, apologetics and all that stuff, he still has to go ahead and make a comment. I partied on Coke for a whole weekend and I still kicked your ass. That's yeah, not indicative yeah, but, of you being sorry. That's indicative of the real you. I'm I think I think if you really listen to some of his interviews with Helwani, they're very revealing. Even the one with Joe Rogan on his podcast. I just don't think no matter what I don't think he's ever really sorry that he did these things. Um and does all these things. It doesn't matter what he writes on Twitter or, or swearing by the Heavenly Father or his kids. I mean, how can we even really believe him anymore? Um, you know, when he first came into the UFC, they put, you know, he had, he was putting forth this whole kind of choir boy act and this kind of really righteous, God-fearing family man thing, and, and it was fake. And, and we, we know we know it was fake, and maybe we started liking it when he started acting like when he started when he started maybe embracing the fact that he wasn't that guy. But it's even worse than that because look, it's one thing to get a DUI; people make mistakes. Um, but he's we see it's he does this repeatedly, and again for him to hit another person. Who was pre- okay? Maybe he didn't know she was pregnant, but we found out the woman was pregnant. He hit her, ran, ran away, ran back, and ran away again. That, that's horrible. That's one of the wor- to me. That's one of the worst things you could ever do in your life. When you when you hurt when you are at fault for an accident, and you and you can't even admit fault. And he, I truly believe he doesn't believe he's at fault for anything. And that and the. Are those are those not the true marks of a sociopath? They're up there. Uh, I, I, the they, big one is that they have the, no conscience for what they do. Yeah, they've changed. And I don't believe he does have conscience for what he does. Uh, all right. Again, the only the thing I want to touch on before we you know, kind of close up shop here. It's in that same situation, and uh, I'm going to say my piece here, and then we're going to go on because again, I. I, I don't disagree with anything you guys said about Jones. I'm not the biggest fan of them giving the title back to Daniel Cormier. I mostly because I am a I'm kind of a stickler for uh, precedent for you know for following the tread path so long as there's no clear reason not to. And the last time this same basic situation happened, and you have to go in the Wayback Machine here, mind you, but Josh Barnett defeated Randy Couture to win the heavyweight title. I forget the exact year. Pat, you know off the top of your head? 2002. Okay. So 15 years ago. Barnett defeats Randy Couture, uh, stops him in the... He stopped him. I forget exactly when. And failed a drug test for steroids. And subsequent, and after that, the UFC simply vacated the title. Uh, this might have been the start of one of Couture's issues with the UFC, which are many and crop up recurringly throughout the course of his career. Uh, I don't know, but that's the that's the path that has been set. And I that really wish they'd have. And it, how the UFC deals with the aftermath of this circumstance is generally independent of the athletic commission. The athletic commission determines the record. They determine suspensions. 
However, how the UFC wants to proceed with how it recognizes its champion is solely up to them. They are the lone arbiter. And I'm just not the most comfortable with giving the belt back to the guy who just lost. I think it puts, in large part, I, I tend to think it helps put Daniel Cormier in a somewhat untenable position. I mean, there were people calling him a paper champion, misusing the term, by the way, but they were dissatisfied with him when he was champion the first time he won the belt after Jones was stripped of the title. And now you've put him in a position where he was knocked out publicly on one of the most purchased pay-per-views of the year for the UFC, if not the most by the time it's all said and done. And you have to sell him as the champion. Now, I get it. He shouldn't have lost. You want to change the outcome to a no contest, that's fine. That's one of the penalties that should go along with what, with what Jones did. Okay with that. I don't think there's any appreciable value to be added to simply handing the belt back to the man who lost because he's likely going to defend the belt against either. Okay, but uh, he didn't lose. If it's a no contest, then there's no more loss. No, but what what he's saying is in the context of when they actually did get in the cage, was he beaten up and bested? And the answer is yeah, whether it's official or not. Yeah, the, but, per, the perception uh, Nevada, is there because here's, of that. Here's one verifiable difference. Nevada never overturned uh, Randy Couture's loss to Barnett. Uh, the win stands for whatever. The athletic commissions in the early 2000s. Right. Yeah, yeah there was no right. precedent so, in place for that at the time. All right. Yeah, it, so again, I I can understand I can understand why they made the decision that they did. I can understand how they are able to justify it. Uh, this is one in, of those in, things I recall Robert to stop you there. There was another precedent I believe where a fight, a title fight, I think in Victa, uh it was a finish but it was later overturned to a disqualification. Oh, yes. And yes, I think the title, yes. it, it, it returned was. to the original well, that champion. Was, uh, okay, no, no, I remember the – it happened very recently. It was Tanya Evinger and Yana Kunitskaya. There you go. Yeah. Um, the pro, I, I think the primary difference in that case was it was a referee's error that led to it. Right. Um, the referee made an incorrect ruling in real time that immediately led to the – Evinger having to tap out to an arm bar. Well, look, look, we've seen mistakes. Mistakes by by officials have led to finishes before, and those finishes sometimes get overruled. Yeah, um, and if the well, referee I think, I think we're getting away here, I would probably be more okay with it. Yeah, I, I think we're we're getting away from the, the point Rob's John trying to make. Jones. I, John Jones. Yes, no, it but, was. And but I Jones think, should I not be the, the I champion. I think what Robert. Yeah, I think what Robert's putting out there, if I if I understood correctly, is that e- even though legally and officially on the books, it's not a loss for Cormier, so technically he was not beaten. He still was in the cage with a guy and got beaten up in front of everybody who saw it. And so whether he lost the fight officially or not, everybody who saw it is going to say he lost the fight, especially the the more casual observer who when they are, like, hearing that Daniel Cormier is now the champion. And so when he has his next fight, you know, on a pay-per-view against whoever it may be, Gustafsson, whoever, and the UFC light heavyweight champion Daniel Cormier, 
He'll be known as the guy who John Jones beat the piss out of again. There has to be, and that was his last fight. To these actions, and I, what are you saying or not? Hang on, hang on. If it means Daniel Cormier, here's what I have to say to all that. If it means Daniel Cormier is champion, lame duck paper champion, so be it. He's still more of a champion and more of a of more of a a fighter and more of an athlete than John Jones ever will be. I. Again, my perspective is just that it puts Cormier in a in an undeservedly untenable position, and I and I don't even understand the business logic behind it, in the sense that if Cormier is hang on if Cormier as champion was drawing significantly, and you now have a circumstance where you can just give the belt back to him, that would be one thing. If but again, let, let's assume Cormier's next fight is against Alexander Gustafsson which I believe is a logical conclusion to make. If I don't think there's any added value to Cormier defending the belt against Gustafson as opposed to Gustafson and Cormier fighting for the vacant belt. And it's, not like two, and it's not like 205 is a robust division where you can't I, have I a non-champion. We're just, hair, you, we're just splitting hairs, whether it's vacant or not. If you, if it's really that important to you, then okay. Then then the two runner-ups are going to fight for the title, and they'll determine who the next champion is. Because look, either way, the whole thing is untenable, Robert. What, and it's all because of, but it's all because of John Jones. The whole situation is ridiculous, but it's only yeah. ridiculous because John Jones is a blithering idiot, or as Scott Glenn would say, a thundering dumbass. So, yeah, or a drug it addict. Sucks. Yeah. Man. It does. It freaking sucks. It's stupid as hell. It's ridiculous. But we're in this situation because of John Jones, and I'm not going to accept. Oh, I, I mean, oh, man, Cormier is the champion, and now he has to deal with all all this. He was dealing with all that beforehand when he had to fight John Jones when he was beating when he was beating guys up like Anthony Johnson and Gustafson. Because John Jones wasn't around and hitting pregnant women, okay, and and and, and sandblasting hookers, all right. It was already yeah. like that. We're not really. It's not. It's not radically different. Other than John Jones is proving how even more of an idiot he is. I mean. I mean. I mean. Look, poor Jeremy Lambert. This broke him. I mean. I. I mean. I mean. Pat came back. Jeremy Lambert might never come back to MMA because of this. Okay, this really hurt him hard, and I'm feeling I, Jeremy Lambert I read his right piece now. on it. It's so did I. again, it's a He's terrible situation, right now, and it's John Jones's fault. John Jones, shame, shame, John Jones, shame, and accept the shame. Stop making lies to your heavenly Father and accept your shame. Well, yeah, and let's I, be real. The UFC, I know he's going to face a suspension, and he'll still technically be under UFC contract when he comes back. Release him. Why would you keep him at this point? Uh, okay. I, I, I need to, him. I, I, hang on. I need to address something here that kind of got brought up in uh, the comments, and I forget where it was. Uh, but, okay, it, A, if the UFC were in a position to release him and was not going to take a massive financial hit, they would and should. I mean, they should, even though they're going to take a financial hit doing it. Somebody brought up, and I need uh, this I do feel needs to be clarified. 
someone brought up that if Jones is suspended for two or four years, let's assume four for the sake of this discussion, that would be it would be a good period of time for the UFC to release him because he then can't compete anywhere else. That's not accurate. Um, USADA is probably. Well, hang on, hang on. Hang on. USADA has no actual authority. Let's start. Let's start here. USADA has a set of guidelines and principles and testing facilities, so on and so forth, that they provide for a fee. And all parties voluntarily agree to their conditions. That's how international well, what about competition. California? California is dealing with this as well, Robert. That's the one that's relevant. If USADA suspends John Jones for four years and the UFC releases him, John Jones is at that point no longer under USADA's purview. They can extend his suspension, but if he's not fighting for an organization that is is going by their guidelines, it ma- it doesn't matter at all. It's like me calling myself president. I can do it, but nobody cares because I have no authority. I mean, individual yeah, state... California, if California upholds that suspension, then what? California will suspend him based on their guidelines. And really, and this is the other thing here, no state is obligated to uphold the suspension of another state. They do because it provides a degree of continuity. And even then, they don't always. Texas has frequently licensed and sanctioned fighters who were under suspension from another state. Not just them. Um, damn it, what was it? Mississippi? I can't. There's another one that's well, well, relatively well, was on a He was on a suspension from Nevada for Pride, I think, 32, for testing positive for steroids. And then he, I think he just went and fought overseas. And I think Antonio Silva did the same thing. Yeah, there's plenty of other uh, countries, uh, Japan, several in Europe, I believe Germany. I think uh, England doesn't have their own governing body or, or testing setups. Again, the only reason that a suspension in one state carries to another state is because said other state chooses to uphold it. There is no binding legal agreement. They do it because they want you know, a degree of continuity, a degree of maintained authority. But there is no – again, there is nothing legally doing it. If the, There's nothing saying California must uphold a suspension handed down by Nevada or New Jersey or Florida. They choose to, but they can choose not to. And if, so again, if John is suspended for four years by USADA and the UFC releases him, he could sign with Bellator the next day. And there are states that might even sanction him. Or he could sign with WWE. He could absolutely do that. Where there is like where there is no real drug testing. Um, but again, as a point of clarification, USADA is not. USADA has no actual authority outside of any organization that chooses to be under their purview. The UFC is the only MMA promotion in the world that is under the purview of USADA. 
anyone else, they can raise the middle finger to USADA's suspensions because they don't matter. If John is not with the UFC, the why USADA sanctions so mean California nothing. Why would California uphold USADA's suspension? Why would they not? They don't. That? I, I, I don't know why they don't, but no, like none of the individual states pass the same sanctions as USADA, and none of them are none of them so, thus far have upheld them. They have their own systems in place. They have their own penalties, their own hearings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what they go by. And that's what is generally accepted throughout, again, the United States at least, is that each state will uphold another state's All suspensions. Right. Here, here's what – is there any chance John Jones and his camp can find some sort of tainted supplement excuse here? To get him out of this, or at least get a reduced uh, suspension. There's no, loose... they'll never, they'll never retest the B sample. There's a loose possibility if John is able to find the specific substance that has been that has this in it, and he can demonstrate that again, he will still be found, you know, liable for the negligence. He will still. Uh, again, if he only gets two years out of this, that will be a significant win for his team. Because oh, yeah, I mean, you know what? Had this been had this been the yeah. first time he ever got caught using a substance, his whole you know I I didn't do this blah blah, blah that might hold some weight. But guess what? He's had numerous instances where he's tested positive in terms of drug use alcohol abuse, and all these other things. So in reality, on top of that, having the B sample test positive, he has no credibility. There is no reason for another test at this point. The commissions will not pay for it. His camp will, I'm not his camp will be test. given the reasoning to pay for it. a compelling argument, like some sort of – No, like, no, was, absolutely well, look, not. His last test, he was given a reduced suspension of a year when he faced heftier penalties because he apparently proved that he was being negligent and not guilty of cheating, I think was the conclusion. Which, yeah, which the again, though, sets precedent that he's already had this happen. You already right. had this, and you learned nothing from this experience. We're not giving you any more. Right. He can present an um, argument. The, the, the adjudicating body can choose to take it only with so much – can only apply can choose how much they choose to apply it, given that this has happened in the past. It's entirely possible that he is able to prove he was simply negligent rather than actively cheating, and the response is, "You've been negligent twice now in a very truncated time frame. We don't care. Here's your four-year suspension." Here's here's one other thing, uh, Robert. The substance he tested positive for, uh, Terinabol. Uh, it's It's been around more recent than I think Germany in the 60s or whatever. Uh, athletes in the 2008 Beijing Olympics were testing positive for uh, Terenabol. Um, ah, and uh, athlete, athletes who were stripped of medals. So it's been around more recent. Than, I mean, it made a, a resurgence, back. I guess. I, I was not yeah. aware of that. I know it was I know it was very prevalent during the 60s. I uh, again, I thought it had just fallen out of favor, and you know, testing got better, so on. Um, geez. Now, 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 look, I look. This is coming from a questionable source, so believe it or not, Shell Sonnen claims if if Jones is failing for Terenabol, 
then then they're missing the really good stuff, is what he's saying. If they found the Terenable, they're missing the good stuff. For something like that, I can almost believe, from even from someone like Kale Sonnen. Well, Kale's somebody who knows his way around PEDs, so I wouldn't doubt exactly. that he, he exactly. knows something. And, and let's be real. If you're not aware of this, most performance-enhancing drugs are used in combination with another for specific results during testing. A lot of people, for example, who use a drug called Winstrol, which is basically a bodybuilding drug that keeps your body mass low while causing extreme uh, – uh, muscle definition, you supplement that with a drug called gamotropin, which is a, testo- a synthetic testosterone that stops testicular atrophy. You can take nandrolone, which is basically a weight-cutting aid while keeping muscle mass and eliminating fat, but you add to that another drug called stanozolone, which is a synthetic version of the same drug but with different results. You don't I mean, just when, usually when you use one performance Ed, enhancer. When you see those photos of Jones, like, walking around kind of pudgy and overweight before he went into camp for Alexander Gustafson and, how, and then how he looked a short time after that, it doesn't really surprise me that he'd be using something like that. Yeah, so, again, that's where we are. We are now waiting for, again, the official sanctions to be handed down by both the California State Athletic Commission and USADA. And the light heavyweight wasteland continues to be a wasteland. Um, All right. On that note, we went on a bit longer there than I anticipated. Uh, Jeff, are there any other major news items that you think we should touch on very briefly? Jesse Taylor failed a drug test, too. The ultimate fighter. Out of competition <laughs> drug test after the win, yeah. Uh, um, oh, well, the fight... And this is, uh, isn't Jesse Taylor, yeah. before we go, isn't Jesse Taylor the same guy who got kicked out of his original tough finale for yeah, breaking windows correct. and doing his idiot stuff in Vegas? Yep. yep. Same yeah, guy. Good to see, see some guys don't learn. Okay, and then um, we got our... our our main card, well, most of the card, I think, for UFC 217. So it will have uh, Bisping versus George St. Pierre for the middleweight title, for the bantamweight title, uh, Cody Garbrandt versus TJ Dillashaw, and for women's strawweight, uh, Ioana Janjacek uh, versus uh, Rose Namajunas. I think that fight was already in the works or already announced. Also, Stephen Thompson versus George Mosvidal. At welterweight, Corey Anderson versus Patrick Cummins at light heavyweight. Uh, Hendricks uh, versus uh, Paulo, uh, I'm sorry if I get this name wrong, uh, Bochinha, uh or Boho. Wait, wait, Johnny Hendricks uh, is fighting Boho Chinha? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Oh, poor Johnny and, uh, Hendricks. Alexi Atlantic versus Curtis Blades. And uh, so those are, the main, those are the main fights for the card. So they have most of the... Um, so hopefully, I already said it on Facebook, <laughs> no one get injured or fail a drug test for this car, please. I really want no to see No one in the top fights. four fights fail a drug test <laughs> or get injured. Please, I'm begging. But the good news is, the good news is if, if, if some, if some catastrophes do happen, they have a few options, at least they have a couple options in there. 
And if a fight does have to get derailed, if it's George and Bisping, I wouldn't be brokenhearted. Just saying. Any of those other ones, yeah. But if George and Bisping got hurt, I'd be okay. I want to see. I want to see the two other fight, title fights more than than Bisping yeah, versus GSP. Yeah. Actually, uh, so, those are the those are the by biggest. a significant so, uh, margin. Yeah. yeah so, I want to see uh, Masvidal more than I want to see that. No, that's Thompson true. Versus Masvidal is a, is a great, a great fight. fight. I love that. Yeah, that's a really because good that's fight. A, that's an action-packed matchup. So yeah, good. The, the, there's some good stuff all around there. Um. I think those oh. are, I think those are the kind of the major things uh, uh, from so the last thing I wanted to I just remembered when you brought up 217 the UFC did simply reschedule Demetrius Johnson versus Ray Borg for the main All part right, of UFC 16 watches Ray um, Borg pulls out again and then everyone and then everyone's going to get angry <sighs> Guy, okay, yeah, guys. At this point, if you get annoyed at Ray Borg pulling out, that's on you for expecting him to make it to the cage. But at least we get Kevin Lee versus Tony Ferguson on this card as well, and I like Here's that fight. The, the other thing I wanted to say about uh, that fight being moved to uh, two sixteen, two sixteen needed a supporting fight. Um, yeah. While Tony Ferguson and Kevin Lee's a great fight, the rest of that card would have made a darn good FS1 card. Um, right. So Johnson and Borg <laughs> as a look it up if you think I'm lying. Uh, Johnson and Borg adds uh, maybe not adds a lot of buys, but it adds some overall value to that pay per view that I think it was needing. So all right, let me just say I hope, this, and I don't like saying if a lot, but I am saying if if Borg is out of this fight again, I'm never gonna let anyone within earshot not hear the end of it. I'm going to, this is going to be, this is going to be a big thing for me for the next however many years. I'm never going to, Demetrius Johnson, you're going to be hearing a lot from me about that on our next conference call that we're both on. So Ray Borg, you better come correct. I hope Ray Borg is able to make weight and get in the cage. I said it when they were first scheduled. I like elements of that fight. And I also would really like to see DJ break Anderson's record which I think he will do. Uh, all right. Anyway, that's all the news items I think right. I wanted to touch on. So, Jeff, anything uh, you got to plug? Check out my review of American Assassin. I have a couple new reviews coming up this week for a couple big movies you might have heard of. I can't say what they are yet, uh, but uh, if you know what the big movies are coming out uh, next Friday, uh, I will be taking care of those. Also, my reviews of Marvel Spider-Man, and uh, check out. Um, <clears throat> oh, also, I'm going to have some coverage from uh, the Bethesda Softworks uh, gameplay tour event. Uh, some previews of uh, the new Wolfenstein game, and also the Evil Within 2. I got to uh, play those uh, last week and get some get some early gameplay in of uh, some of Bethesda's new upcoming games. So be on the lookout for that. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jeff. I'll be looking forward to reading those. All right, Pat, anything you want to plug here? Yeah, uh, this past Thursday, if you guys missed it, you can always catch it on the archives on the Rod Ellison Broadcasting Network. Mark and I, despite difficulties or hurricane issues, uh, we reviewed the second and unfortunately final season of Dennis Leary's FX uh, vehicle, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Um, Very, very frank discussion of when TV goes right versus when TV goes wrong and 
how the vision of writers can be very different from what the vision of the audience is looking for and wants. Uh, it's a really good discussion if you want to hear those types of elements and where they collide and ultimately how they can affect the show and where the shortcomings of writing can end up. Uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. We hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you haven't heard it yet, go on over and listen. Uh, this coming Friday on Netflix, we will have season three of Fuller House dropping. And as a standard issue, Mark and I have reviewed each season to date. We will be reviewing that following uh, season on, I believe, the Tuesday afterward, which would be September uh, 27th, I believe. Uh, but don't quote me on that. But the Tuesday after this Friday, we will be releasing our review of Fuller House Season 3. 26th. Uh, 26th, excuse me. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, Paige, I see your new dude. He ain't all that great. Uh, all right. As for me, uh, if you, I had to go solo because Mark was unable to make our Tuesday review for it due to, you know, Mark living in Florida. Uh, so if you want to listen to me babble on for about 90 minutes on my own, feel free to check out my review of the, again, of that movie, which I believe is the number one movie for the second weekend in a row. Uh, absolutely worth seeing. So you can listen to me wax poetic about that for as much as I do when talking to myself about movies. Um, I don't think I have something this Tuesday. No, you're up this Tuesday. Oh, no, sorry, you're up next Tuesday. This Tuesday, I don't think Mark and I have anything. Uh, so I'm not sure what is to, what's on the schedule for Tuesday. I don't know. Something. There will be something in all likelihood this Tuesday on the Red Legend Broadcasting Network. Feel free to listen. Um, I thank you to everyone who followed along with my live coverage of UFC Fight Night 116. Thank you in advance for following along for Fight Night 117. Uh, tune in for that. Uh, we will be back next week, uh, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard, this Sunday. We will be reviewing Fight Night 117, and let me make sure the timing on this is correct. It will be the 24th. I think that's all we'll be doing. 216 is the 7th. Yeah. We will just be reviewing Fight Night 117. On the 1st of October, we will be previewing UFC 216, which... Uh, turned into a pretty darn good main card. Again, you have two title fights, which I think are what's driving the actual expenditure of money. Fabricio Verdum and Derek Lewis is a good fight. Benil Dariush and Evan Dunham is a good fight. Uh, Paige Van Zant's fighting. Uh, there's a crappy heavyweight fight. There's a... This thing is... This is ass backwards. You have Tom Dukenwall on the prelims. You have Magomed Bibluatov on fight pass again. No wonder these people don't generate momentum. You bunch of jackasses scheduling cards never give them a chance to be on the biggest stage. Ugh, that's backwards. That is completely backwards. Ugh. All right, anyway, come back on the first. We'll be previewing that card in its entirety. Hopefully it'll hold up. All right, that's it for Pat and Jeff. I'm Robert. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, please continue to be well, be safe, and behave. 